I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. The podcast where we read celebrity memoirs and then tell you what we think of them. And if you say, hey, all I want is what's in the celebrity memoir only. And if that's not exactly what you're saying, I feel I've been scammed. Well, how about you go read it for your fucking self then? Oh my God. Oh my God. I know we've got a lot of new listeners with us today since we've got the juicy, juicy Caroline Calloway memoir in our hands. I just want to let you know, normally we're so kind. We're so gracious. We're so inviting to our audience. Something that people say about us consistently is, I like that there is sweetness radiating out of their bosom. I like their compassion. I like their generosity of spirit. So Ashley, why don't you try again? Kindly. If you don't want celebrity memoirs with a side of our opinion, you feel that is a scam and three quarters, a snake oil shot, if you will. Well, then I hope you find a book and a warm glass of tea elsewhere. And if you want what we have to say, well, hey, hop in. We're painting Matisse's. Before we get started, just in case you haven't heard quite yet, we are going on tour. We are headed to Toronto, Chicago, Minneapolis, Denver, San Francisco, Nashville, Atlanta, Philadelphia, and Washington, D.C. in the next months, weeks, before the end of the year for sure. So if you live in one of those cities, check your local listings. I would love to see you there. We also have merch. Claire is wearing our ugliest girl in the world attack sweatshirts. So if you are watching on YouTube right now, take a look, take a gander, maybe pick one up for yourself. And Claire, before we get into this week's episode, if your life was a memoir, how would you title last week's chapter? I'm afraid I've been frogged. (laughs) (laughs) Do you guys know what frogging is or is this something my brother invented? I know about it because you say it a lot. Okay, but I heard it from my brother. So my brother has convinced me and my whole family that there's this thing called frogging and it's an epidemic and it's when (laughs) essentially you're being parasited, like somebody's living with you in your house. And you don't know. And they just like stay in a room you're not in. And then they sleep in your bed, but make the bed really nicely after. And so you're just like living amongst somebody else. and You have no idea. It's like squatting with you, not against you. He's like lives in fear of getting frogged. (laughs) And and he's gotten me living in fear of being frogged. Because I'm like, I would know if somebody lived in my house. He's like, you wouldn't. That's frogging. (laughs) I'm like, I'm not getting frogged. And he's like, you wouldn't know. And now I'm like, is somebody with me all the time? Do you want bugs to come over and check for frogs? Because I do feel very confident when I heard this frogging term. I used to always be anxious that someone was in my closet. Like as soon as I stopped living with Julia and I started living alone, every time I got home, I would check the shower, the closet, behind everything that a person could fit behind. And then I got bug and I was like, well, she'd make it known. I actually have the opposite. If I'm scared somebody's behind the shower curtain, I have to specifically not let myself look because I feel like indulging that fear gets me worked up more. I have to be like, there's no one there and then turn away from it. Because like, if I open it, it suddenly I'm like, no one's there. But then in my head, I'm like, it's because they're behind the door. Like, do you know what I mean? Like my adrenaline gets pumping. So I just have to be like, of course, they're not here. Live your day. You're for sure being (laughs) frogged. (laughs) Oh my God. There's never been a more primo frogging victim in the world. I guess I shouldn't have gone on air being like, if you want to hide my house, I will not check for you. But I have like my eighth cold in two weeks. Does that sound right to you? Yeah. A lot of colds over here. And now I'm like, oh, okay. I guess I must be getting frogged by a toddler. Because I'm like, who else is getting (laughs) sick at the rate I'm getting sick? And I'm like, only kids. I'm like, oh, there's a family here. And they have a kid with sticky hands who's going to a daycare where they're picking up every germ. And now I'm getting frog sick. 
that's the only explanation I, I could personally come up with for why I could possibly be so stuffy every day. Another good one could be allergies, but I think my thing makes more sense. <laughs> I feel like more likely a child lives with me. I will say I've heard pretty gnarly things about the pollen count this season from nerds. I've heard bad things about frogging from my brother, so it's anybody's <laughs> guess. Ashley, if you were a celebrity, what would the memoir of last week be called chapter-wise? I would call it expanding my social circle. Recently, I've been trying to fill my calendar with more things, and I think I need to like know more people. But instead of trying to make actual friends, I've really made it my mission to get into the cool group at the dog park. For those of you who don't know, Ashley recently found out that there's not just two groups at the dog park because of time. There's two groups because there's an in-group and an out-group, and they do not mesh. I thought that it was just like the morning crew and the evening crew. And it turns out that there is a turf war <laughs> at my dog park. And me and Bug have just been like frolicking around. I was like, oh, yeah, that group is unfriendly. They won't speak to me. And the other group is much more friendly. They will speak to me. And then I was like, oh, my God, I'm in the outs. <laughs> I had no idea. And instead of just like accepting my fate as a dog park dork, I've decided that I like have to win over the cool kids. And I know that this is a really bad use of my time, <laughs> but I need it. I don't think so. I think the most important thing in the world is to be part of the cool group. And if you're 15 and feeling like a loser in high school, let me say to you right now, keep trying to win their <laughs> approval. I don't care if it takes money. I don't care if you have to have sex with a football player, whatever it takes. Get in that cool group. I don't endorse this message. I do think, though, getting into the cool group at the dog park will change my life and I have to have it. <laughs> <laughs> OK, and tell them the big twist is that they're all entertainment people. And ironically, they think they're better than you. So if you guys could get it back to them that Ashley actually has a podcast that's listened to by dozens. <laughs> dozens, if not tens of 20s. <laughs> <laughs> we have merch and you know, because we're wearing it all the time. Oh my God. I wore my shorts the other day and someone was like, oh my God, that's really funny. Are you like in a book club that only reads celebrity memoirs? <laughs> and I said, I'm in a profession. I'm such. I said, it's actually a podcast and this is my own merch. <laughs> 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 What's not cool about me, huh? Anyway, should we get into this week's book? Because I know that everybody is frothing at the mouth. Oh my God, I can already feel the disdain for the amount of time that we've spent joshing up front. We read Scammer by Caroline Calloway, a book that does exist somewhere. We will get into on the Patreon how we came into possession of this book because we still don't technically have a physical copy, although we did find printers. It is our fault that we don't have physical copies. Ashley's doing a hand gesture that says maso menos. Originally, she said she was shipping Monday. And then on Tuesday, when I checked to see if it had shipped, she said it's shipping today, which I don't believe because as of today, Friday, it still has not arrived. I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying it's on brand. Okay. Scammer by Caroline Calloway for Lena Dunham. This book is dedicated to Lena Dunham, which ironically, or not ironically, I actually have no idea what that word means, is how we know Caroline. So we said we didn't like Lena Dunham's book, and Caroline said, you've got Lena all wrong. And we said, I don't think that's true. But she came on to defend that Lena Dunham did not change our minds in the slightest. And I don't think this was actually that bad of a book. So if you're here for just like a full-on roasting, we will not be making fucking... Hawaiian bread sliders at this barbecue, baby. For the record, I said, Ashley, we're too silly to record this episode today. And she said, we must record it right now. So if you're listening, being like, this is too silly. <laughs> I don't know. Pack it up, bitch. <laughs> anyway, what I'm saying is there were like very Lena Dunham-esque moments in this memoir. And I did like feel the inspiration oozing between the lines. 
A lot of people came to us after the first Lena Dunham, Caroline Calloway crossover with CNBC. And they were like, why did she defend Lena so hard? It makes no sense. And I'm excited because in this book is revealed a lot of the secrets that we knew that I couldn't really tell you guys because she promised me not to tell anybody. But the reason was that Lena Dunham had bought Caroline Calloway's life rights. And for some reason, that was like an NDA thing for a while. Now, you know, like, why was Caroline so invested in defending Lena Dunham's name? And it's because she wanted to curry favor with Lena who had all the control in the world about whether or not her story got made into a movie. So it was in her best interest to be like, look, Lena, I'm defending you everywhere. I'm a good little soldier. Why don't you soldier me back? And that being said, I do think she genuinely loves Lena Dunham's work. And that is not something I agree with. Chapter one, I fuck to be fucked over. I've never had an orgasm, but I fake them all the time. I think I'm tricking the men I sleep with, but really I'm scheming myself out of ever achieving real intimacy during sex. I needed these first paragraphs to slap you like a dead fish to the wet face. There was too much pressure on how I'd open my first book up to do anything but gobsmack. I have to say, I actually had my boyfriend print this out at his office job so that he could print and bind it and get it like hole punched so I could read the manuscript easily. And he was like, I read that first page gripping. (laughs) So that's Mac's official review of the first page. At first, I was like, oh, okay, sex, sex sells. But there's a poetic beauty to being like, I can't finish. Because what she's known for at this point, the big scam of her life is that she's never finished a book. And I also want to say this book is written in like 80 short vignettes, which I do think was the right way to do this book. I think the way her writing flows, the chapters that were longer than two pages were hard. Yes. And she does go back and forth. It's my favorite way to read memoirs is actually how Prince Harry's memoir was written. It's how Jeanette McCurdy's memoir was written. It's my favorite memoir style. So I actually enjoyed it. It was denser than I thought. I looked at it and I said, oh, I'll finish this book in two, two and a half hours. It took me, I think, four. So it wasn't like it took me weeks and weeks. But interestingly enough, this brings us to chapter two, where she says, someday we'll make my first book. And we were like, but for now, you have this day book of 67 vignettes. Day book is a word I coined for writing that's intended to be finished the same day you start reading it, evoking the magnificent childhood pleasure of devouring a story cover to cover in a single afternoon. Day book pronounced like day bed. I find it very interesting. Okay, so my overall analysis of this book is I don't know that she makes me feel anything. I wouldn't say she writes great art in the way that I'm left feeling less alone. I'm not moved to tears. I'm not particularly emotionally compelled, but I think she does this incredible thing where she writes for like women who have English degrees from good universities that aren't getting the chance to use them all the time. She writes these like meta books for you to analyze what she's doing and something about it does compel you to constantly analyze. And there is something very interesting This woman is writing this book, knowing that we're watching her exist in real time and like defining it for you in the book. It's a very like ballsy, breaking the fourth wall move. My whole life, I've avoided writing books by avoiding first drafts. I couldn't tolerate my own mediocrity for more than a few pages at a time. She dives back into this idea of the fact that she hates drafts and therefore can't finish a piece of writing several times. And I do think it's partially that she can't tolerate rereading her own work in some ways. But I think a lot of it is because her actual talent lies in like building up anticipation more than it is in creating a work. And so that's why on page three, she's already queuing you up for a next book that has not been written yet. Yeah. Now there's something else for people to go on the internet and say, but will that one ever come? There's always queuing up and anticipation of next things. And if you go into the acknowledgments of this book, There are like five more books teased. In the acknowledgments, she acknowledges her family and she says, and this book will be dedicated to you, mom. And this book will be dedicated to my grandma. She titles all of her next books and like, will they ever come? Maybe. 
Reading this book, I enjoyed the way I enjoy watching reality TV and reality TV in the modern age where you're watching the editor's version, but you're also watching it on Instagram. And then you're also trying to understand like, of course, these people are playing it up for the camera. So what's really going on in the third world? And I think Caroline's book is interesting in that way where she's talking to you head on and you're kind of like, well, what's true? What's not true? I don't know that you could read this book if you didn't know her lore. Like, I wonder if this book could exist outside of the obsession with her. I don't know what as a child made me believe that being a famous memoirist was going to solve all of my problems since all anyone ever told me to do was pick a different goal. But I latched onto a version of myself in a ball gown with fresh flowers in my hair inside a castle and said a story that was true. And here I think is actually the interesting thing that is presented about Caroline. And I don't know if she means to do this. I don't know if it's just what's interesting about her. But she is somebody who wants to be a memoirist, but also refuses to acknowledge her own real life. And I think that that is like the part of Caroline that we can't look away from. What this book did for me was, I don't know if she's a great writer. I don't know if she's a great memoirist, but it did make me go, okay, she is a fascinating person. And I think that in itself is a huge win for her. Because so much of the discourse around Caroline Calloway is, is there any there there? And I think there's something so American about her that comes through in this book of she really did have like a fascinating childhood like a fucked up life. As somebody who has read 100 celebrity memoirs, the part that I'm always the most interested by is like people's childhoods. You look at Minka Kelly, you look at Viola Davis, Molly Shannon. The part that wasn't interesting about her book was SNL. The part that was interesting is like her troubled relationship with her imperfect dad. And Caroline has that story in her life. Her quote unquote best friend sold her out to the public. And then two days later, she gets a call and finds out her dad has killed himself. That is like a gripping narrative. What I latched onto was a version of myself in a ball gown with fresh flowers in my hair inside a castle. She keeps saying, I want to be a memoirist, but what she wants to be is a fairy tale. And I think that that need and obsession of hers to be rich when she could talk about who she really is, is like what is hard to look away from. Reading this book, it hit me, this whole narrative of her being in so much debt after her book deal lapsed. I was like, oh, that's a very standard amount of student loan debt that she found herself in. That story did like compel me outside of this book for a long time. And then reading it on paper, I was like, wait a second. She's just like a brilliant weaver of everyday things into like, why was this such an insane narrative for the papers? Do you know what I mean? Like she is a PR genius. When I heard about it elsewhere, I was like, oh my God, she had to make an OnlyFans to pay off her $100,000 worth of fraud debt. And then I was like, wait a second, $100,000? That sounds familiar. <laughs> I've paid off $100,000 of debt. <laughs> but I think that's also why people get so mad at her is because it's kind of hard to put your finger on what exactly the story is. But I think that you're watching her live this kind of fairy tale version of everyone else's life. And you're like, why is hers a fairy tale and mine kind of sucks? And it's because she denies the parts that kind of suck. She yes. will not be stuck to it. And she will always cling to the aspirational parts. So I just want to quote this because if you guys listen to the episode she did about Lena Dunham with us, you know that she has a profound love of beautiful sentences. There were so many times reading this where I highlighted something and said, oh, beautiful sentences. And ironically, I think her attempt to write beautiful sentences is one of the things that actually held her back and made this a denser book than needed to be. Yeah. I thought of it because of what you were saying, which the story is compelling. The times I found it slower when she'd write things like this, this is one paragraph, one sentence. If the air in my rancid childhood bedroom had crackled one afternoon like a field before a thunderstorm and a milky portal had been struck into an opalescent slit and an older me had stepped, radiant, grinning from this labial tear in the fabric of space-time and I had the flowers in my hair and my gown, my gown, birthday candles, eyelashes, 11-11, all my wishes were the same. That is a sentence I read two or three times. I'm reading it again now. What are you talking about, Caroline? I have no fucking idea. But so she has this chapter three, which is very brief, very quickly just lets you know, I grew up in a hoarder house. My dad had anger problems. My parents were divorced by the time I was 10. 
we were upper middle class, but it was a disgusting, sad home. Chapter four. The worst scams I ever perpetrated were the ones for which I was never caught. I lied on my application to Cambridge. That's the whole chapter. And this chapter had me quite anxious because I was like, oh, we're on chapter four and it's one and a half sentences. Is this what the book is going to be? And luckily this isn't like reminiscent of the whole thing. But I do think this like rapid fire, here's like four paragraphs of my upbringing. Here's a quick sentence of scandal. It gets to the truth of what Caroline is, which is that she wants so badly to be what she thinks we want of her. Mm -hmm. For a while, she thought we wanted her to be a fairy tale. So she played up fairy tale. Then when she heard Scammer, she's now playing up Scammer in this book. If you read the Vanity Fair article, which is, I think, very influential in this book, she was being interviewed by the Vanity Fair journalist for a year and a half, which was the entirety of writing this book. I guess that journalist at one point suggested that this is like a sexual gothic lesbian drama that comes through very heavily, very heavily. I think the interesting thing about Caroline is, and I don't want to say she refuses to be who she was, because I'm like, I don't know, why can't you choose who you are? But she will do anything she can to ignore the truth of her upbringing to become who she thinks we want her to be. And I do think in that tension is like what is so fascinating about her. Somebody who like continues to deny themselves to keep reinventing. Yes. The other thing that I find so interesting about her obsession with like becoming somebody who could be a memoirist is she says, two days after your ex-best friend erases your pill addiction from the record and her internationally believed tell all about you, taking credit for your work and making everything bad you ever did on drugs seem like your baseline personality, the core of who you are, your father's rotting body is found. It's suicide, suicide by pills. Now that's just bad writing. That's the kind of bad first draft I spent my whole life trying to avoid. I find it so interesting that she calls everything that is actually interesting about her bad writing, but then is obsessed with being like the ivy-covered halls of Cambridge. Beautiful sentences. I don't know why it's not hack to write about fairy tale stuff, but she's really mean to anything that would be like authentic and unique to her. I guess at the end of the day, she actually really wanted to write YA series, but she likes the lore of memoirist because this book gets like more and more magical as you go along and not actual magical, but like, I don't know, the gothic structures, the winding staircases, the Harry Pottery references. She really loves those kinds of like magical romances and like wistful looks across a courtyard. And I'm like, why didn't you just write a series that took place at a British boarding school? <laughs> but then she claims that that would have killed her because that is the crux of why she couldn't write the book that she was paid to write is because that's not who she was and that's not the kind of writer she is. But yet it feels like that's exactly what she would rather write about. So chapter five brings us into her getting into Exeter. So her dad was a genius, but a troubled genius. Obviously, he was a hoarder. He had anger problems and he later had like much more severe mental health issues. And she writes about it in this way that she doesn't full on not believe. She says that her grandparents were like blessed in evangelical church to like have genius children. But then when they became liberals, all of their kids went crazy. Yeah, well, that's what they say. But I just think they happen to have mental illness in the family. Yeah, but I don't know that she doesn't believe it. So chapter six is all about the famous lack of kneecaps. She was born with a congenital condition, one in seven billion. She has no kneecaps. What the fuck is on her knees then? I'm sorry. She says that there was this back and forth between a doctor where they were like, well, we could do a new surgery every year to replace her kneecaps with bigger and bigger false kneecaps. And they said, well, what would happen if you just give someone no kneecaps? Would they be able to walk again? And she says, will the body relearn to walk without them? Run. It turns out I can do everything but dance. But what caps her knees? I don't know, man. I'm not a doctor. 
But so she spent a lot of her childhood from eight to 13, I think, in leg braces. And she says the leg braces and regular mouth braces would come off. But my beauty and ambition were as permanent as those important things could be. She's good at writing these little sentences that she knows will make people mad. Yeah. Because she doesn't talk about the way that she looks particularly often in this book. But I think the way that she threw my beauty was as permanent as my ambition. I was like, oh, that's there to get people riled up. I mean, every now and then she like really goes in calling herself hot. I actually do think she's very pretty. But it's obviously an annoying thing to say. I also think that this chapter is such a good example of why it's so hard to trust her because it's like she's touching on everything the internet knows about. She famously has no kneecaps. Here's the truth behind the kneecaps. But there's also this sense of like, are you telling us the truth or are you only ever building on the character that's been created on the internet? Everything in here we already knew. Is it because we know everything there is to know or is it because she's so careful about the image she's curating and only doubling down on the things that we've proven are interested? And that's the weird thing is she's like has a perfect test of what people are interested in because she's been putting it out there for likes and engagement. I do feel like she is in some ways diving deeper into this character she's always been building. And in other ways, she is expanding on this character in a way where it's like you thought you knew this, but it's actually this and neither thing feels in any way true to me. The thing that makes me an inch skeptical of everything in this book is Caroline Calloway has done like perfect market research on what people find interesting about her and what people want to hear her talk more about. So anything she puts forward is like, is this really how you want to tell your story or is this what you think people want to hear? The other thing is she opens up this book by saying these are short vignettes. This is the day book in the version of my life that will later be expanded in the official version of And We Were Like, this book that I've been promising you for years. So there are things in this book where I am like, well, is this just additional market research to say, like, will this version of the story turn people? Or in the larger version of the story, can I say, is not necessarily the truth. What I really meant was this. I almost felt like that was a way of hedging her bets about being like, well, if you didn't think this was really good, there was another one coming, which is exactly how she texted us. She was like, I have this first book coming out. I don't know if you'll like it, but the next book will be more up your alley. And that whole first vignette is like, if you don't like this, I'm doing it this specific way. But I feel like she's doing it both for us and for herself. Yes. Out of fear. I agree. So she says that kneecap thing is her first claim to fame. My second claim to fame was saying one line to Daniel Craig in the Hollywood flop, The Invasion with Nicole Kidman. So she has like a one scene on camera. Interestingly enough, Natalie Beach recently came out with a second article in The Cut where she says she watched this scene like 10 times over and over to try to figure out if it really was Caroline or if this was something Caroline lied about. And I can't imagine that this paragraph isn't in response to that essay. Yeah. And that's what's interesting about this book is this book that I think is supposed to be so personal and so from her soul. And the whole premise of this book is she goes, I'm a writer. I have this thing inside of me. I need to tell the story. But if the story is constantly being shaped by what happened online yesterday, I do feel it takes away from the authenticity. But I also don't feel that that takes away from the intrigue of the book. What is interesting about Caroline Calloway is the evolution and the response to online and watching her be like this postmodern writer trying to exist as a persona. So here's something very interesting. So we were sent this PDF version of the book that I don't know is the final version of the book because I saw a tweet that said that there is additional section of the book that was written after the Vanity Fair article came out. And I don't know if that was misinformation about the fact that there are references to the Vanity Fair interview in this book or if there is references in the final chapters that were written last week after the Vanity Fair article came out. Well, something that I thought was interesting was a couple of these paragraphs. I was like, where have I heard this before? And there were direct quotes from the Vanity Fair article. And it made me think, did she send paragraphs of her own book to the journalist as responses to answers? Or did she hear herself in the Vanity Fair article go, oh, I like that as part of my larger lore. I'm going to put that in the book and we're going to build off of this so that there's repetition. 
Exactly. But then she also says in this book that it makes her mad when she does interviews and other writers get to profit off of her stories. So maybe she was just like, I'm not writing something fresh. I said that to you. That was smart. I'm taking it back. I'm reclaiming it by putting it in my book. Who knows? It's like a living, breathing document. I mean, she reminds me so much of the way that Taylor Swift exists right now in terms of how much of like audience input helps to build up the lore. Yes. And the thing with the additional books to come in this book, she references that she wants to publish her Cambridge captions along with footnotes as a book. She wants to essentially republish this as a larger story as another book. And I wonder how many of her memoirs will, first of all, exist, but how many of them will be re-references to the previous memoirs as a way to like grow and expand the world that she's continuously creating instead of just being sequels. And again, I want to say me not trusting her does not take away the, from the fact that I did find this book like compelling and interesting to read and fun to think about. Yes. I think at the core of it, this is a fun thought experiment. I think if you are friends with people who like talking and thinking about Caroline Calloway or just internet culture and how the internet and like online presence has affected our brains. I do think this is an interesting book to like read and talk about over wine with your friends, which also might be like what she wanted. She's talking about all these future books she plans on writing, which just keep rehashing the same five years of her life, her early 20s, her Cambridge years, her Cambridge captions, her relationship with Natalie. Meanwhile, the plot of this book relies on you believing that it was so horrible to her, this idea of writing a book about a schoolgirl character in love triangles that she had to sabotage a million dollar opportunity and almost die by addiction to Adderall because her soul was so crushed by the premise of that exact book. Which I do not understand is how it's that much different than this book or the books she plans to write later. Same. But maybe that's the fun and the magic of her. She's presenting something to you and calling it something different. And you just allow yourself to be gaslit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the crux of this book is two things. One, writing Schoolgirl would have been such a soul-crushing thing that she almost died to get out of it. And two, that the second most soul-crushing thing that ever happened to her was Natalie writing that exploitive article about her, which is something that she cannot get through in the second part of this book. I can't separate from the fact that like they're not good things, but like the way she writes about them is like such personal tragedies. I know that she doesn't believe that. Yes. So chapter seven is all about how she changed her name. She went from Caroline Calloway Gottschall to Caroline Gottschall Calloway. And she explains that this is normal by listing every other important celebrity name change that's ever happened. If you build a life around an identity that springs from your own imagination, is it ever inauthentic, a grift? And then she gets into going to Exeter, which if you guys don't know, it's a very famous old school boarding school in America. Her dad went there. And here's where I think her writing flourishes when she talks to you like an excited best friend. Yes. She says, who's writing the Exeter brochure these days? Fire them. My imagination is fucking fueled by private piccolo lessons and ancient Greek homework and Olympic-sized hockey rinks. Plural. 675 acres, just 100 less than Central Park, and the largest high school library in the world, even larger than Eaton's. It's a building so architecturally important to American art history that it was once on a U.S. postage stamp. My God, the presidents who have peed there. Even the graffiti was blue-blooded. Fuck you in Latin. Class of 1831, Reagan inside an arrowed heart. That is the writing where I think she thrives, where she's just like this manic, crazy girl. That's the thing is like a manic girl after extreme wealth is interesting. And her obsession with it, because there's something so fucking bold faced and honest about how obsessed she is with it, which is what everyone in America is. And this part, I actually think is extremely honest. The closer I came to trust fund stepwives, second summer homes, the more I believed obscene wealth could catch like a disease. 
Because I do believe the pursuit of extreme wealth is something that she like genuinely craves and has become less and less ashamed of craving. And I actually find that very honest because it's so unlikable. It's so unlikable, but it's so universal. And I also think there is such like a quiet fight club code that she actually quotes later. If you're near all these old money traditions, you don't put it online. You don't speak of it. And she had this like reverence for the old money, but like this tactlessness of being like, and I have no problem not only wanting it, but exploiting it in a way that'll burn all the bridges, a la Truman Capote. I'll say it. Because to want to be a part of their world so badly, but then also want to exploit it in a way that you can't be a part of it anymore, but for the fame. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes, I do think that that is something most people who want it that badly want to live within the parameters of what they're allowed to do so they don't get kicked out of the club. Yes. Most people don't work that hard to get into the club only for their membership to be revoked over a Snapchat story. I agree. So she talks about going to Exeter for the first time and immediately being like, I need to be a part of this world. I feel amazing here. Like, I want to fit in. I'm a spare Rockefeller. And then she has this interesting paragraph where she goes, there were certain things I had always known and these things I knew down where the knowing meets the bone. Some you could argue were educated guesses. It's not outlandish that I always believed my depressed father would kill himself. Other premonitions made me nauseous with their impossibility. I always knew I would be a famous author, get divorced once, married twice, and have a daughter named Lily that I'd never grow inside of me. Maybe I'd adopt or do surrogacy or named a guardian of some poor orphan in a will. I knew I'd kill myself too. Not now, not soon, but definitely in my 60s, maybe 50s, maybe 70s. It's not a specter of an age that stalks me, but an image of my face beyond which I know, marrow deep, that there'll be no new wrinkles. I didn't think I would go to Exeter, go to Cambridge, meet a reporter who would change my life forever, win all my best prizes posthumously, I knew. And then she also talks about how she premonished scandal. She knew that she would be neck deep in scandal at some point in her life. And baby, she was. How easy to say from the other side of it happening. And then to be like, I know that I'll kill myself one day. To say I knew it as if it had already happened. And she says later that she's writing this book as if she's already dead. It's all very compelling to say this out loud. And, but it's all very contrived. And some of the layers of being contrived, I think, work better than others. I agree. So later she talks about scandal being a riptide, being canceled, being a riptide. You have to sort of embrace it in order to survive it. And I do believe that a lot of her scandals have become scandals out of her own embracing and embellishing of them. A lot of these things are nothings. And so when you're explaining Caroline Calloway to someone who's not steeped in Caroline Calloway lore, it all sounds like kind of a lot of nothing. But she's taken it and made it something. And the people who like eat at this table are eating it too. That brings me to this next point that I wanted to make about her first boyfriend, Andy, from Exeter, who she claims this is his real name later, which also becomes part of it. So she talks about she met Andy. He was depressed. She was impressed by that. They started dating. She lost her virginity to him. And she talks about the day she lost her virginity to him. I stole another glance at Andy and then I stole his things. Holding a plastic star in my hand made me feel like a pathetic fairy, which was better than just feeling pathetic. I was thieving, yes, but more importantly, I was about to fucking ball. And I find it interesting because she's known as a thief, as a scammer. Someone stole this money. She scammed you out of ticket prices. And I feel like she does these clever little things where she'll be like, I did steal something. A light up plastic sticker star from my boyfriend's ceiling that was there as a joke anyway. And by like setting you up to make it seem so reasonable, I feel like she's good at like chipping away at the bad. She says, if you've never been touched by scandal, never do a scandal. <laughs> but if you have, then you have to do a billion in order to just like make it kind of a shrug of the shoulders. She references Trump and the Kardashians and says like, if you're going to say fucked up things, say all of them, because like then people can't really keep track of it. 
And I feel like this is a part of that. Yes, I agree. So she tells the story about losing her virginity. It's in a dorm room. It's just a sneak out. They're at school. If she gets caught outside of her dorm, she'll get expelled or in a huge trouble. So she has to call her roommate who is left nameless in this book to let her in so that they don't see that she's used her key card past curfew. My roommate was a native Hawaiian, but pale as the cupcake with that kind of a naturally giant rack that can eroticize a teenage girl and age her at the same time. I would have spent the rest of the night in the New England February, a climate that kills a couple Americans each year just because they didn't put enough layers on. Instead, I collapsed into her double Ds. So then, of course, we talk about her unnaturally giant rack. We fell asleep each night in parallel twin beds, linked arms on the way to the dining hall and said I love you to each other more than we ever said it to our boyfriends. But there was also a strange snaking vine of tacit tension, night blooming flowers that spiraled up our ankles after every wet footed shower. Every time I asked her to curl my hair, she was the only person at Exeter who knew I came from a hoarder home and still be changed under tents of towels, watch TV shows sitting on the floor rather than even touch each other's bed. It wasn't like I didn't know lesbianism was an option. I was just so by it made me complacent. Rearranging the internal architecture of my identity called the way I felt towards women crushes deflated me with effort. Autopilot was easier. I am not in any way questioning her sexuality. I think that if she is bi, good for her. But I really find it off-putting the way she sexualizes her roommate in this way to like introduce her bisexuality. And then she goes, in the morning, she touched my cheek to wake me, told me it was time for classes of apologizing for both of us. She's married to a woman now. I think about them and hope they never break up. This was the first time in this book I got a genuine ick. Same. The way that she like centrals herself, whatever she is, it's very clear in this book that she is putting forth a new label on her sexuality in order to turn the tables on the Natalie Beach story. Yes. And I really don't like that it's introduced with her roommate's bazongas. And I don't like that that roommate is now a lesbian. I don't like that like Caroline's like, I hope they stay together for my sake. I don't like the way that she dehumanizes this woman. It all feels gross to me. She later says there's certain people that only need to be nouns in my life. The reporter, the journalist, the high school roommate. That dehumanization to expound on her story as a bisexual feels really inappropriate. Inappropriate. It feels gross. And it also feels exactly lined up with what she has market tested on her Instagram. Because Natalie is a huge part of her story. And of course, she is literally a huge part of her story now that the cut article had gone out there. But had it not been for that, the cut article... Would Natalie not just be the college friend? And I do feel that this is one of the insights into I'm like, this is not your real memoir. This is not really the story of your life. This is the story of building an internet character. But again, who she is may just be an internet character. And in this book, she challenges you to think, is that just a sexist thing we say to women that you share too much online that you want attention too badly? But I'm like, maybe it is, but you definitely are guilty of it. <laughs> and I think it's fair for all us to all have a good long thought about what is the morality of being obsessed with internet attention. Anyway, so then she spends the summer, well, she summers with Andy, her rich Exeter boyfriend. And that is like one of her first real consistent tastes of like rich people life. And so she's given this option at the end of the summer. She can go summer with him or she can go home. And she says, there was no memoir waiting for me back in Falls Church. That's where the book is. That's what's so interesting. And I think that's the divide of Caroline. And I think that's the part that keeps her so fascinating. The fairy tale is at the beach and the memoir is at home. She spends the summer researching memoir agents. She wants to find a book agent. She knows she's not ready for one yet, but she wants to have the names in the back of her brain. And that's where she sets her sights on the person who will eventually become her agent. She was like, I would thumb their acknowledgement section so I could begin researching literary agents. I wasn't ready for them yet, but soon I might be. Scamming started now. That's not scamming. But the other thing wasn't really thievery. And this is how she 
starts undermining all of the attacks on her, which I think are valid. I don't think she's a scam artist. She's a liar, which is a lot less romantic and requires a lot less cunning than a con artist or a scammer. It is interesting the way that she slowly rebrands by like taking the words and misappropriating them. So that you start being like, ah, well, this isn't so bad. That's not a scam. And I will say her next paragraph I actually found really smart. That summer, the squash captains I lived with were all obsessed with a writer named Tucker Max and his fratty sexcapades. I was obsessed with Tucker Max's business plan, giving away compelling short stories about your life for free on the internet and then leverage an audience into a book deal. And she writes down Tucker Max's literary agent, Paris Lloyd. So then she's taking a gap year because she didn't get into any of the good colleges she wanted to go. She takes her dad to Martha's Vineyard and he offers to pay her rent in the West Village the next year. Her dad lost custody of her when her parents got divorced. And it seems like he used money as much as he could to buy back her love and affection. And that is where the money came from. And I find that to be interesting because I do think one of the big discourses around Caroline Calloway is, is she poor? Is she secretly wealthy? Which one is it? And there are like upper middle classes in this world. And of course, a West Village studio apartment is expensive for a 22-year-old. But but to rent an apartment as like a father's way of buying back someone's love is not the most outlandish use of cash. And it is like not the same thing as having generations of wealth. Yes. I know someone whose parents bought them a condo in the West Village. That is old money to own property as a 19-year-old. And she frames it in obviously a very poetic, humanize me way. I'd spent the summer crying and my dad didn't notice my tears, but he did notice that I needed an apartment. And then the next chapter is, my dad's body was so decayed by the time the Virginia police force broke down his door that at first, before the autopsy results were back in, they couldn't rule out murder. A detective from Falls Church called me in New York that afternoon to ask if I had any leads about foul play. The officer actually said that. Worst book ever. Such bad writing. I know. Again, that's quite interesting. And it's interesting that she has no qualms about being like, my boyfriend's beautiful Martha's Vineyard house. She describes the hydrangea and the summering and Cap du Hotel Eden Rock. But then these things that are genuinely vulnerable about her life, like the traumas of her life, she's very scared to touch sincerely. Then we get to NYU. She takes a very coveted writing masterclass taught by David Lipsky. And she's like, I can't believe it was coveted. I just applied on a lark. Her and one Natalie Beach were the two youngest in the class and the top of the alphabet in the class. So when it came to sharing work, it was Natalie Beach, Caroline Calloway, then the rest of the class. And this is how they met. They kind of wrote at each other in the class. And they also started developing a sort of friendship. Caroline says that she was immediately taken by Natalie's light green eyes and soccer captain abs. This is a new version of Natalie that we've never met before. Soccer captain abs, Natalie. <laughs> And I'm not saying Natalie is ugly, but I will say in Natalie's portrayal of herself in this story, Caroline is the pretty one and Natalie is the sidekick. And it exists to sort of create Caroline's new narrative that she was bisexually in love with Natalie the whole time. Yeah, which really changes the power dynamic. I was like, then we get one of the crazier chapters in this book, which is when I went, oh, yeah, no, she's a crazy person. <laughs> and the scammer oil, the grift tarot cards. None of it is as crazy as she fucking used to be. <laughs> Once I was the Wraith of Yale. During my gap year, I haunted that place like a friendly and all too friendless ghost. I actually really like that line. After work in DC, instead of taking the concrete caverns and hexagonal tiles of the metro back to Falls Church, I would text my mom saying I'd decide to sleep over my friend's place that night. I would not mention that my friend's place was a gothic turret for college sophomores in Connecticut. It seems like pretty often after work, she would take the Acela to New York and then the train out to Yale 
She would text a friend from college who went to Yale and be like, hey, I'm here visiting a friend from home, but she's having a really hard time because of a breakup. So I can't really stay with her. Could I crash on your floor? I'm just here to help her out. And she would just like walk around aimlessly at Yale until she found someone to crash with. And then in the morning, she would wake up at 7 a.m. to get back to New York to back to her internship in D.C. I actually wrote, this is psycho. To go from D.C. to New Haven every night. I was like, do you know what you're saying? Because this is actually crazy. And it didn't even seem like she was doing it to necessarily infiltrate the population. She was just being there to be there. She liked the idea of roaming Yale more than she liked going back to her mom's house, which I do think is something very worth exploring. And again, there's two pages here of descriptions of Yale. Electric jolts of joy sparked and scurried over my skin as my tangled white headphones that I made a study of that spired scholastic kingdom of youthfulness and youth. And then we get to, I also visited some real friends from home at their Virginia frats and I woke up from my blackout to a boy fucking me. Drunkenly, I thought the quickest way to get him to stop was to pretend to be into it. Whatever happened to me on my gap year fucked me up so much that by the time I met Natalie, I had already decided not to have sex again for one whole calendar year. It was fine. It was rape. I'm overreacting. I don't fucking know. Okay, stop asking me about it. Who knows? Who cares? Forget about it. Stop bringing it up. It could have been my fault. After all, it's not like I was missing out on my own pleasure while he got something out of me. What was I going to do? Finish? This type of thing really breaks my heart because she has obviously decided to like disconnect from her own life so hard and create a story of herself so hard that I feel that she's done this with like years of her life where she'll just kind of disconnect and engage in situations that are very scary. And I think a lot of people have done this. Like I've definitely had moments and times in my life where I just like do things that are dangerous for me because I've decided that I'm like not really a part of my life at that moment. But I think she's done this with like a lot of her time. I mean, her whole childhood in this memoir is like done in like a couple of paragraphs. Yeah. Support for today's episode comes from Jenny Kane, and the timing could not be better because it is summertime and California casual is the way to be. Summer staples, minimalist, effortless, refined. Has anything ever sounded more perfect in your entire life? Throw on a flowy dress, a lightweight cotton cardigan, elevate all of your everyday basics, and shop the most incredible home essentials. Jenny Kane is here to help you live your best summer yet. And for a limited time, our listeners get 15% off their first order. Go to JennyKane.com and use the code WORM to get 15% off. I'm not even kidding you when I say the most romantic thing in the world to me is a day spent at the beach. The waves are crashing. The sun is beating down on you. You go home. You take a nice shower, that post-beach shower. And then you throw on the softest cardigan you've ever owned. I'm sorry. I don't know if it gets more beautiful than that. This is the first summer that I've had a Jenny Kane sweater. And let me tell you what, it's just as beautiful as I was picturing in my head. In any season, but this one especially, their dresses are the it item. You have got to check out the Cove and the Road dress for summer occasions. Their new day dress is quickly becoming just the absolute staple of the century. I get compliments every single time I wear Jenny Kane. It's so comfy. I might start wearing it every single day. Jenny Kane is known for their super luxe cashmere sweaters, but the summer cotton sweater, you can't beat it. Everything in their collection is designed so intentionally that you can style the pieces together without a second thought. I love to pair Jenny Kane dresses with a classic sweater or a perfect slip-on shoe. Jenny Kane believes in the art of simplicity. They focus on comfort, quality, and timeless design so you can curate a wardrobe that never goes out of style. It's the best way to create a capsule wardrobe that you will never get bored of. 
Find your forever pieces at JennyKane.com. Our listeners get 15% off their first order when you use the code WORM at checkout. That's 15% off your first order. J-E-N-N-I-K-A-Y-N-E.com. Promo code WORM. Let getting dressed be one less thing to worry about. Then she talks about inviting Natalie back to her turquoise West Village apartment. And she starts talking about the interesting flip in the dynamics of how they were presenting. Caroline, of course, has this beautiful West Village apartment that is being paid for by her dad, which would suggest that she is this like rich young ingenue. Natalie is pretending to be this like struggling lower class girl who's just so jealous. And she says this thing that I do find astute. She says true ingenues are either born into extreme wealth or arrive at their fluency in it from abject poverty via unplanned means like marrying rich for love or being model scattered at the mall. Oh, this is the part that I was looking for earlier that I actually found to be a really unlikable and really honest analysis of where she stands right now. Is it upper middle class girls like me were just supposed to be grateful that we didn't have it worse? I had a lot of shame around the fact that I was well off but wanted to be well offer. I felt like a gold digger even though I wanted to earn my fortune alone. My books and art of all things. I felt shallow for coveting elite degrees even though the advantages of elite degrees are real. That's really honest. There is this lack of acknowledgement that like someone who doesn't have the worst life can't vie for a better life because there is something very compelling about the rich and the famous. That's why we watch Gossip Girl. So then she's talking to Natalie unprompted abruptly. She told me details about the first time she had sex that I'm not going to repeat here because I can make this story work without them. And this, I will say, was the second time I got a very extreme ick from this book. She really weaponizes not talking about Natalie's sexual assault as the mark of a great friend in a way that is kind of repulsive to me. She repeats several times about like helping Natalie lose her virginity because we weren't going to talk about the first time. The first time didn't count. And she like keeps on mentioning that she isn't mentioning that Natalie was assaulted. And it is pretty disgusting. For some reason, this one part really crosses a line for me that like some of the other very extreme digs don't. No, this one was unnecessary. I think she does a good job coming for Natalie's. Oh, I mean, she comes for her throat. And I think successfully. With an arrow. <laughs> I mean, literally, she depicts that. But I also think she successfully makes Natalie look fucking awful. Oh, me too. And I don't think she's wrong for it. I just think this specific chunk crosses a line to me personally. Reading this book, I feel that both of these women have like taken all of their lives and turned it into content to be used, to be reused, to be quoted and to be like defended that I'm like, well, you guys have really made this bed for yourselves. Like, and I think if it was anybody else, I'd be like, that's too fucking far. But for this, I'm just like, I don't know. Natalie used it for her gain. You're using it for your gain. She used your shit for her. Like, I don't know. Like she talks about Natalie, the worst thing Natalie's ever done. The worst thing that's ever happened to her is having her suicidal ideation weaponized against her on the internet. Meanwhile, Caroline's sitting here weaponizing Natalie's sexual assault in a book. And I'm like, I don't know. They're both really fucked up things to do. Yikes. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I agree that they're fucked up. And like, if you did it to me or I did it to you, if any other people did it, but I'm just like, I don't know, they're in a nuke war. <laughs> oh, get all the nukes ready. <laughs> Prepare the nukes. We're nuking tonight. <laughs> and this is a thing that drives me fucking crazy that we get into once again. So Natalie opens up about this sexual assault that we are not talking about. You're beautiful, I said. I said it because it was true and because it seemed like exactly the thing she needed to hear. I wanted to unburden Natalie of a little shame the same way that she had just unburdened me. And good God, I mean, the pale green eyes, the freckles, the sense of humor, the soccer captain abs. She was stunning. It wasn't a lie. You know, she really starts to open up this through line that she was in love with Natalie the whole time. 
we're back in this class and she says one of the interesting things she starts doing in this memoir class where she had never even read nonfiction before. She doesn't even like nonfiction. And she starts talking about her sexuality in her essays. And she makes up this whole version of herself that had struggled with being a lesbian in middle school. And she says, it wasn't even true. I never even felt that way in middle school. In a strange way, I rewrote my actual past for my nonfiction class instead of letting myself luxuriate privately in truer fictions about Natalie teaching me things about my body I still did not know about myself. I mean, I don't know. Maybe she's a genius. Maybe she's sitting here using this nonfiction class as like an example of what she's doing right now. But I'm like, okay, if I had asked you three years ago, was there any part of you that was in love with Natalie? Would she have said yes? I just don't believe it. And it's very hard to read her be like, It's so crazy that when I first met Natalie, I was faking stories about being a lesbian that I definitely was not instead of actually having sex with Natalie as a true lesbian that I am now that I tell you in this new nonfiction that I'm writing definitely for real this time. (laughs) It just is one of those things where I'm like, I genuinely don't question her sexuality. I guess I think most people are bi, (laughs) but I also do not believe her love for Natalie. I agree. I think it really changes this dynamic in this way that it's like, you think I had all the power, but I was in love with you the whole time. Oh my God. She also says this other thing that I think is silly as shit. Some of the sentences I wrote about my childhood about Exeter in order to impress Nat that first fall at NYU, you've already run your hands over in this book. I tried to make them better 10 years later, but nothing I've learned over the past decade could improve them. She talks about her dynamic with Natalie. Natalie liked when she played stupid idiot and was in awe of Natalie. That Natalie invented the rule of three. She also said they had this weird sexual thing where Caroline was obsessed with their teacher. And it seems like Natalie would come up with sexual situations that Caroline and the teacher would be in. She says, it pleased Natalie, I think, the pleasure she gave me indulging both of sexual fantasies at once like this. And then she finds out that Natalie is rich. She goes to her house. Her house is very fancy. And then she gets her with what I think is one of the most damning lines about Natalie in this memoir, which I agree with you. You could have left out the sexual assault. You don't need to use it. Because she had this little nuke in her little tiny nuke pocket. I learned that Natalie's aunt, her mom's sister, was freaking editor-in-chief at O Magazine. Natalie liked to pretend I was the first bougie bet she had ever encountered while her little sister was literally living in Providence, Rhode Island, going to Brown. And at first I was like, okay, well, your sister could go to Brown. That doesn't mean like you're necessarily fancy people. And I'm like, and what is your aunt being editor in chief at O Magazine have to do with anything? Until it comes out later that Natalie's first job at a college was being the book critic for O Magazine. And I'm like, okay, yeah. And she's out there being like, you're a little fake and a fraud. That is fucking humiliating. And if I was Natalie, I would have kept my little mouth shut so that that exact line never got out about me. Do you feel I'm overreacting? No, I don't. I think this is actually very poignant. In Natalie's defense, it's always difficult desiring which you already have and presenting herself as a put-upon proletarian while also letting her parents arrange her first job as a book critic for O Magazine was undiluted upside. So she talks about how Natalie would always watch her being a tryhard, trying to work her way into all these worlds and circles. And she's like, oh yeah, it's easy to not want to work your way into those worlds and circles when all you have to do is ask. Also... In fact, I've been paying for all our food and weed this entire fall because Natalie had always suggested without saying it outright that it would be fair this way. You know what they say, when you assume stuff, you make an ass out of you and me. That's exactly what happens as Natalie goes, well, she just like took charge and paid for everything. And Caroline's like, well, she just expected I paid for everything because, you know, she was so poor. <laughs> but also, I think Caroline liked living this fantasy of I'm the rich girl who can cover everything. Yes. And then also she gets to the point where Natalie did hand her her first Adderall, which would later be their downfall. And she's like, I don't blame Natalie. Yeah, you're writing that we should blame Natalie. (laughs) Don't think about elephants. Okay, so the big reveal, how did she lie on her application to Cambridge? She 
photoshopped her grades. And this, I will say, I don't know, shame on Cambridge. I'm like, good for her. When people say like, oh, I fudged something to get into a college. Good. Do that. Lie. I don't care. To get into college? Okay. (laughs) She says, my goal is to write as if already dead. Living with a veil of daydreams between myself and reality for so long, all the years of telling people I'm a writer who hasn't written any books was good practice for this. Courage takes courage, but you can always substitute self-delusion if that's all you have in the pantry. I think that's a good line. Me too. I don't know if she's the most successful or the least successful of all of us. I'm saying. <laughs> I'm sitting here reading about her. So I don't know. You know what I mean? And then she gets back to where she is now. She's boinking a bunch of dudes in Florida. She says they all have porn jobs, like a fireman who used to be a gardener and stuff like that, which I do think is funny. And she says if they don't, she'll be like, give me a long massage. And she'll be like, he's a masseuse. A line cook at a pizzeria. She's like, he's the pizza delivery boy. And I'm like, yeah, live your porn life. I think this is important going forward. The way that she's turned her story into a porn story. Yeah, she always turns her story into a different version of a story depending on like what version of herself she wants to project to the world at that time. When she's living in Florida, she wants to like be living in a porn. I do want to say for this porn section, it starts funny and then gets like obscenely elitist. The way she's like in New York, you're always trying to impress these guys who like make a ton of money and you'll never make as much money as them. But in Florida, I've made more money than everybody in Florida. And I was like, okay. And then we get to this really quite spooky chapter. The only person I've ever fantasized about killing is myself. But I do have this one daydream about Natalie that comes close to violence. I'm not interested in her pain so much as understanding that I caused it. And so she talks about this fantasy where she is an archer, probably too much listening to Taylor Swift reference. And she talks about drawing her arrow and aiming straight at Natalie's heart and then deciding at the last second to aim for her neck. As I change the aim of my arrow from her heart to her neck, I think about how I've rearranged the world again, time and time again, to suit my vision for it. Even when everyone counted me out, canceled, rejected, gone. I consider my struggle with suicide, but this time I enter it from a very specific door at the base of its mountainside. I survived. I'm strong. Instead of a kill shot to the heart, I want to hit someplace while still giving her enough time to see herself bleed out. I let my arrow fly, but I've changed my aim a third time, and she decides to let it slide right past her neck. The only thing I've forced her to endure is the slight breeze against her exposed neck, a muscle leaping in her jaw. So she wants her to know that I didn't kill her when I could have killed her. And this made me think that like the passive aggressive jabs at Natalie that we've seen so far were going to be it. And then later in this book, she just like does shoot her in the neck. She makes her look bad. So then we get the story of her first date with a woman in Florida where she gets so drunk she pukes and falls asleep on the toilet. And then still tries to have sex with her. And the girl's like, that's okay. You seem pretty drunk. And this to me, once again, feels like a real fetishization and like mistreatment of women. If you want to say you're dating women now, this feels like pretty disrespectful. They've been on a second date since this book has come out. But at the end of the book, she plans their third date and is like, she's going to read this before we go on that date. So I have to imagine she got this data in really under the gun of the publication of this book, which would have been like two to three weeks ago. Yeah. And it makes me feel like the whole premise of this book, like the whole redemption arc of this book is she's like, I was gay and I was in love with Natalie. And to prove it, I dated a woman. And she's like, fuck, I got to date a woman real quick right now. Yeah. So she finally gets into Cambridge. She had been rejected from Cambridge twice. She was rejected from every Ivy League school. And now on her third time with her fake resume, she finally gets in. Next fall, my real life would finally begin. It was all happening. I'd done it. It unsettled me that my only relatives who found my vision for life and the books I'd write about it sound were my dad and his two clinically insane siblings. 
Then she tells a story about getting Natalie laid for the first time where she brings her to St. A's, which is like a quote unquote secret society. It's literally just a frat for rich people at Columbia. The way she writes about it, I'm like, okay, I can fact check you here. But it is incredible. She does lean into the gossip girl. There are people who want this to be true and she'll give it to you. Yeah. And I guess I don't know how untrue it is to her. Do you know what I mean? Like, I know that it's just a frat. But it's probably fancier than the frats. It is fancy. Yeah. They're in a beautiful mansion. So it's fancier than the frats I've been to at Syracuse. And you can only get in if you're like rich. Right. And so I guess to her, it might be this like beautiful, shiny place. But that's where it goes back again to like the world she lives in is not her memoir, but her fantasy. And she should have just written fantasy. (laughs) I have met this type of person time and time again who wants to live in this elevated world where everything is so special and rarefied and everybody's so successful and we're all so incredible. We are not drawn to those people because I think as comedians, our thing is like, no, you have to tell the truth. The truth is self-deprecating and humiliating. Yeah. But only in that humiliation can we be free. The only reason it's okay to embellish is to make something funnier (laughs) and worse. (laughs) But I do think there's people who enjoy being in her presence because she's not just this rich girl with a beautiful apartment in the West Village that's going to write a book. You are her beautiful friend who's so much beautiful than even you ever realized. And we're going to a party where everyone's a genius and rich. And then we're going to go to the Hamptons and people want to live in that world. And I think if you're looking for someone to think you're amazing, it's very LA to me. It's how everybody in LA acts. And I find it so off-putting and I don't want to live in that world. I want to be able to receive a compliment, not like an embellishment and a a, fantasy. I want to talk about where we are right now. I don't want to talk about what we imagine the world could be if only everything was purple. She describes St. A's at Columbia as, we're going to get fucked up, but only with people who can quote Paul Thomas Anderson cult classics and will not make the mistake of wearing a historically inaccurate frilled Elizabethan collar to our Pride and Prejudice themed orgy. I went to those parties. I can't quote Paul Thomas Anderson and I probably was wearing whatever outfit I'm wearing this literal second. (laughs) And so she brings Natalie to fuck one of her high school boyfriend's friends. And this is another line where I was like, oof, oof. That night I was at St. A's for business and not pleasure. My mission was to introduce Natalie to Andy's old roommate and then get the fuck out of their way. Given the choice to sleep with either of us, I know this dude with a sexy samurai bun who would later go on to make a cool hundred mil or so in Silicon Valley would have preferred me in a heartbeat. And perhaps that's why I still felt so chosen, even as I weaved through the crowd dragging Natalie behind me so I could give her away like a gift, a blessing, a bride. Okay, I know there's a lot to talk about there, but I want to say like me and Caroline were the same age. I'm trying to think who in my graduating class made a cool hundred million in Silicon Valley with a samurai bun. I'm going to fact check that. I'm going to send some texts. Oh, yeah. So this would have been someone my age at my school with a bun. I wouldn't know that, man. So here's this interesting thing of, of course, she has all the power. She is going to help Natalie have sex. Of course, a man would rather have sex with her. But she's such a good friend. She's getting Natalie late. But then the roles are very quickly reversed when Natalie calls her and says that she climaxed. She had this incredible orgasm. And now Caroline is the one who's like not having good sex. On her first try, she has an orgasm. She's so sexually empowered. So what does Caroline do to get back at her? She finds a rich boyfriend at Equinox. His name is Elliot. And he brings her to galas. But can you believe it? He doesn't know anything about writers. So she's so bored. This relationship feels like such a lie to me, but only because I'm like, I guess there were people like this. It's just like not a world I exist in at all. She claims he's 21 years old and on the board of the Guggenheim Whitney New York Public Library Frick. I don't think at 21 you're the trustee of that many things. The Frick one, that rings true to me. I knew a lot of people who did that. But I feel like at 21 you were on the board of all of those things. And then all of these galas. I knew people who went to galas. 
they were going on maybe one a month top. She was claiming they were going to like three or four a week and they were only together for four or five months. I do not think in the time of four or five months, you would go to more than four or five galas. I've only been to one gala in my life and I think I was 15. So I could not possibly fact check this, but it doesn't feel right. So she decides to run away. She's going to go to Cambridge in the fall. They break up that summer. And out of boredom, she downloads Instagram and buys 40,000 followers. Buying Instagram followers today is choosing to scam. The concept of influencer marketing now exists. Follower account is a currency that can be cashed for luxury cabanas, designer purses, cloudier friends. In 2013, no. I genuinely think that her buying Instagram followers as social proof is true and smart. Yeah, and it was before the concept of advertisement. So she spends the summer in Italy with Natalie. She's paying for some reason. Natalie was already in Europe doing a semester abroad. And she pays for them to live in Italy all summer with her dad's credit card. And they work on these Instagram captions together. They take photos of Caroline all day. Natalie is happy to do it. And Natalie encourages her. She feels like what she's doing is kind of silly. And Natalie says, does a finance bro think his work emails are pointless? Is he embarrassed? This screen time is your job. And soon I made it Natalie's as well. But our collab flopped. We published the content we co-wrote for an audience of 40,000 bots. Literally no one was reading what we wrote. And this is where their collaboration for now ends because Caroline then goes off to Cambridge. Natalie goes back to NYU. But meanwhile, this whole summer, she's again seeding this like sexuality in there. So they're in Italy. The innkeeper says, do you want a room with one big bed now that's ready? Or do you want a room with two twin size beds later? They take the big bed now. And she kind of fudges the translation to Natalie because Natalie doesn't speak Italian. So instead of saying like, we can get a queen bed now or a double, like two twin beds later, she says, should we just take the room that's ready now? And Natalie's like, oh yeah, for sure. Later, they're in that bed, lying with her backs, each other in bed, sheets, Todd. I asked my side of the room, a wall, would you like to live in my apartment this fall for free while I'm at Cambridge? And for the billionth time that trip, Natalie said yes. And I resented her answer instead of my inability to ask the question that I meant. And I was like, is she trying to say she wanted to ask Natalie if they wanted to hook up? Like, surely that's not what she's saying here. Surely that is what she's saying here. Mostly, though, I was smitten with her, googly-eyed with her fun. One of the things that Caroline cannot write convincingly to me is romance, because I don't believe that she's ever been herself in a relationship. And she actually does say that later, that she's never been herself in a relationship. But I do think that that really makes it so that she's never been in a true relationship and cannot for the life of her write about it. So writing this Natalie love feels so forced. But also, all of her heterosexual relationships feel quite forced to me, too. She'll just, like, say a name. And like, does that romantic, wistful, terrible writing where she'll be like, shaggy hair, walking on the beach, toes in the sand. He'd never read one book, but I loved him. In Italy, I cheated, not with Nat, with a man. And then she keeps making out with men until finally her and Elliot break up. What you need to know now is that I was bombarded by crushes that summer in Italy, although that's never what I called my love for Nat. And while having a crush feels like you fucking invented crushes, having a crush on someone while avoiding texts from your kind boyfriend is harder to explain. She starts at Cambridge. She meets Carl pretty immediately. He becomes her college boyfriend, who I believe in the Instagram captions was called Oscar. So if you've been following the Caroline story for a long time, we're talking about Oscar when we say Carl. And then she actually says, Carl interrupts a reporter at Mattingly Hall. Who the hell is Carl? She kind of just explains that she wants to change his name, even though it's many years later and it's not going to help. Out of respect to him, she thinks he'd appreciate it. You see, behind the scenes, the thing that actually bound us together was the fact that we were both middle-class students at a university for aristocrats. But later on, as I changed the way hundreds of thousands of people saw him, I changed the way he eventually saw himself. We'd both grow into the characters I created for us, and when he opened the door that day, he was still just Carl. 
And then she says she's not going to talk that much about Cambridge. She's going to save it for her expanded memoir. But she still talks a lot about Cambridge. So her first semester at Cambridge, she quickly finds out from her dad that he's not as flush with cash as she thought he was. So she can't be like paying rent in the West Village and paying tuition at Cambridge. So Natalie, who is living in her West Village apartment for free, they need to be Airbnb being that apartment. And she says, I had to tell Natalie immediately that she couldn't live in my apartment for free. Part of me felt like this would go over just fine. This was my home after all. And Natalie had never been entitled to it for zero dollars in the first place. The other part of me knew that she would never, ever stop complaining about this. Or more specifically, I knew that Natalie liked receiving love best when it came burritoed and effusive and endless apologies. You could tell Nat I love you, but she'd accept it with less pushback and more heartfelt delight if you just said over and over again, I'm sorry. I actually find this description of a person really interesting. There is like a type of person who would rather be in the power position of having been wronged than just being loved well. Yes. And I do find that to be like a quite damning image of Natalie. But this is a situation where like, well, very clearly I see what happened here. And this was two young, dumb girls. Of course she was upset that you're kicking her out of the apartment. It's hard to just find another place to live. This is a bigger inconvenience than being like, oh, you could borrow my sweater. Oh, should I need my sweater back? This was her home that she thought she was set up for for the rest of the semester. But also, Natalie, what do you mean you thought you could just live in her place for free? But also, Caroline, why did you offer it in the first? Like, this is just 20-year-old girls being goddamn idiots across the board. She says, some secrets I understand why Natalie kept out of her essay, but one particular that she withheld still puzzles me. When I hired her during my first fall at Cambridge to help me start airbnb my apartment in the West Village, I forgot that there were sheets in the closet stained with period blood. I just plum forgot. So in Natalie's version of the story, she talks about being bait and switched and then forced to like clean up Caroline's nasty apartment, which we know Caroline does tend to not clean things. So, okay, it sucks to have an apartment swept out from under you. It sucks to now be cleaning up period blood. But also, did you think you were just going to get a free apartment in New York City? The fact that you were more than comfortable taking that from her is inappropriate. And then she talks about how her mom had been also undergoing cancer treatments while her friendship was growing with Nat at NYU and mentions that that wasn't a part of the story. And I'm just like, I don't know. I think it would have been weird for Nat to have mentioned that. And it's weird for you to be mentioning it now in this way. I do think it's relevant that while you were at NYU, your mom was undergoing cancer treatment and was extremely sick. But it's not relevant to Natalie's experience of your friendship or how gross it is to have to launder someone else's period sheets. Yes. So it's interesting to me that now the cancer is being brought up now that she's at Cambridge, now that Nat is laundering her period sheets and not before when their friendship was blossoming at NYU. Caroline's mom's cancer doesn't seem to have any impact on Caroline's life. It only comes up when she's like, oh, Natalie told you I was a bitch. Well, did she tell you that my mom has cancer? And she says it's because it would have been too humanizing to mention that my mom has cancer. Caroline doesn't seem to be interested in using it to humanize her own story. Just to debunk Natalie's. If you've never heard of Dipsy, it'll be a pleasure to meet. It is an app full of hundreds of short, sexy audio stories designed by women for women. There are all sorts of oral pleasures to explore. Oral like your ears, okay? But actually, they have that too, if that's what you're into. Dipsy brings scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, hot and heavy hookups. Everything that you've ever imagined, Dipsy brings it straight to life. They release new content every single week. So in between going back to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something brand new to explore, including sleep stories, wellness sessions, and sexy stories you can read. Let Dipsy be your go-to place to spice up your me time, explore your fantasies, relax, unwind, or heat things up with a partner. 
Just when I think I've seen everything Dipsy has to offer, I dive down a new rabbit hole of sexy, sexy stories that I had no idea I even wanted to hear. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash worm. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash worm. Dipseastories.com slash worm. She goes, I have to tread lightly and lyrically in these paragraphs because my May week descriptions in And We Were Like will be the peak of my literary career. However, I can still give you snippets of sunshine on the banks of the river Cam. Again, I find it very interesting that she says that these lyrical descriptions of her college days will be the highlight of her career because as we'll get to later, the book that she sold was supposed to be all about her magical fairy tale days in Cambridge. And she said it crushed her soul, the idea of writing such bullshit. I wrote a note next to this that said, is this stupid or like brilliantly in character? I mean, and then she has an entire chapter about how fun it is to have balls in England. So she tells all these stories about these balls that she goes to over and over again. She has a couple of weeks where she does nothing but go to these elaborate parties all through Europe. And she does have one interesting story about at one of them, someone does fireworks and these boys just complain that it'll ruin the hunting. And I'm like, that is like one of those interesting snippets of aristocratic society that you would only get from like a portrait of the lady or something. That is good old fashioned European aristocracy that people love to hear about. But then at the end of the paragraph, she goes, and so I write for the girls who want to have fun above all else, precisely because once they finally get it, these girls can barely feel it. I write for the girl I once was. And that sentence itself felt so out of left field for me. It did not feel that it was written in the same tone as everything else. I don't know if that's a leftover from an old version of this book she wrote or what she was trying to do here. I don't know if she's trying to set the seeds that it's like this magical life I had. It wasn't even fun. But this line to me was quite corny and it didn't really match tonally with everything else. Yeah. So she gets into her Adderall usage now. Her first Adderall was New York City 2011, and now it's 2013. She's in Cambridge, and she is very addicted to it. She uses it all the time for everything. And then it turns out you actually can't get Adderall in Europe. It's illegal there. And so she has to like fly back to New York semi-regularly to go to this goofy-ass doctor that she found on Yelp, which, I don't know, she like low-key accuses John Mulaney of plagiarizing. <laughs> It's also exactly how I used to get Adderall. You just like go on ZocDoc and find all of the people with reviews that are like, they don't listen to you. They just prescribe pills. And you're like, bingo, boingo. Yeah. So that's what she did. And she finds this doctor who she says like always has some odd story or malady or thing. Part of me only thinks this is true because I'm like, could she write a character this funny, like a funny little pop in comic relief character? But maybe she could. I like kind of don't believe this character. She says one time he just had no eyebrows. One time his hair was bleach blonde. One time he like vanished for a couple months and then he came back talking about German prison. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> one time he just had a chemical peel. Yeah. <laughs> she said, I don't know if he'd had a chemical peel or like been attacked with acid. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know either. Anyway, so he prescribes her Adderall. And, you know, that is a lot of money to be flying back and forth from Europe to get your drugs. At this time, she also starts using her famous strategy on Instagram of buying ads on like book fanfic sites and then posting Instagrams. And she starts figuring out how the algorithm works. You need more and more content, better stories. And she also hits up the literary agent that she had bookmarked way back when, Tucker Max's literary agent, Paris Lloyd. And she tries to finagle a meeting with Paris Lloyd. She really scams her way in, which I find really interesting. I know. I'm always like, I hate it because there's this thing in the arts wherever someone gets something and you're like, how'd you get that? They're like, how dare you ask? That's so disrespectful. 
But it's because the answer is like this. She gets a meeting with him by calling the receptionist and just being like, I have to move my meeting from Thursday to next Monday. And they're like, um, you're not even on the schedule for Thursday. She's like, well, that's not my problem. That's your problem. But I'm moving it to Monday. And they're like, okay. <laughs> she flies in for her meeting. She sits down and he goes, so what is this meeting about? And she goes, are you always this unprepared for your meetings? So, I mean, it's nothing but pure chutzpah, which comes from pure delusion. But as she says, if you don't have any courage, use what's in the pantry. And Paris says, you know what? I will sign you if you can get press. Like if other people are writing about you and interested in you, then we'll do this. And so she goes in and she says, okay, I will build my Instagram, be a student and get PR for myself. She gets in the Daily Mail. She gets a handful of pieces written about her and she has a literary agent. And again, she does it brilliantly. She's like, there wasn't like a whole online social media tech beat. So I would Google Kylie Jenner Snapchat and whoever was writing about Kylie Jenner Snapchat, I was like, okay, these are the people who are taking social media and turning it into news. And I mean, she does have a real knack for PR. Because she's turned nothing into a lot. Like at the end of the day, her story is no story because she won't write the real story. My sophomore year was also when Natalie called me and told me about her sexual assault. She fudges the timeline in her essay for emotional impact so that she's assaulted the night before I ask her to clean my period bloodstained sheets. But she's not correct. One of the most common criticisms I'd see about Natalie's article is that the inclusion of her sexual assault story seems so unnecessary, that the many details Nat published about her sexual assault could have constituted their own essay. They just seemed a little out of place in this one. I disagree. I think Natalie deserved a chance to talk and for people to listen, even if she acquired that audience by using me. I don't ever blame her for lying about the timeline of her assault to make me look worse. She just wanted to be heard. <laughs> Psycho stuff. She mentions that this was like kind of the last time in her life she was fairly lucid for the next five years because Adderall took over. She also says this about Natalie's sexual assault, which is where I said, oh, shut the fuck up. She says, I remember weeping for Nat, but I also remember feeling something that was so fucked up. I need you to brace yourself before I tell you what's coming next. I will say I, this is probably the only thing in the book where I've said you should not have written that. As Natalie described her topless and abused body... I could feel myself getting wet. I didn't mean to be turned on, but my cunt clenched with desire, even as tears streamed down my chilly, wind-whipped neck. I really wish she hadn't written it. I, like, don't even want to talk about it. <laughs> Was it the violence, her naked body? It wasn't the violence. I never told her that. And telling you this now, I realize that I've had the, a flawed goal this entire time. All my life, I wanted to be a famous memoirist. But we want our famous people to be role models, and we want our memoirists to be honest. So essentially, she says what turned her on was that she and Natalie have never talked about sex in this way. They've just been like, we had sex. It was good. They never talked about like where hands were on the body, those types of intimate details. She's saying she was horny about it. The way the language in this part, she has sex in other parts of these books. She never uses language like topless, body, my cunt clenched. It was too far. It was too bullshit for me. I don't know what was happening. Maybe she did like have an arousal response to hearing this story because it was a story about sex. But she also says earlier in this book that even though she's never had an orgasm and she doesn't even know if she's that attracted to men, she's often very wet. And that that's something she like uses sexually in like sex talk, but it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with how turned on she is. So then for her to flip it here and be like, I don't know, suddenly I was wet. And I guess that means I'm a real turned on little pervert freak for Natalie. I'm like, no, it doesn't. Because before it meant nothing. This was too far. This was my you're crossing a line. I thought this was fucked up. Me too. 
I also felt it was insincere and maybe I'm projecting, but I've known people in real life who have like almost faked perversions in order to seem more interesting a la a Woody Allen. A la Lena Dunham. Yeah, I do feel like there's people who kind of like play with this gray area of fucked up responses to sexual assault to make them seem like real monster writer, interesting people, psychosexual people. And I'm just I actually have no fucking patience for it. This next chapter, I actually didn't know what she was talking about. So I don't know if we have to talk about it. But she says, not everyone remembers the day they turned famous, but I can. I like. I don't know what she's talking about here. I guess the first time someone called her and wanted to write an essay was like such a turning point in her life after like chasing and chasing and chasing when it started to come to her. It's a lot of quotes from the Vanity Fair article. So maybe she just had to make up a chapter in order to put in some things she thought sounded smart about handling online fame and the fact that people hate her unfairly. Yeah. And then we get to the part where I think things really start to drag. And that's where she talks about her Dimes Square era. This I thought dated the book the heaviest, because even though I said, I don't know if you could read this if you don't know her, she starts listing people's names based on who she thinks is going to blow up, hoping that she's like an Andy Warhol of types. And she even says that spot on, like, I want this to be like the Andy Warhol diaries. And there's certain people that get asterisks. But then she names names like Annie Hamilton. And I'm like, well, you're taking a gamble there. Red Scare. I don't know. Is that going to go in the annals of history? Is that going in the Library of Congress? And she also talks about it in this weird, bad, like blame shifting way about associating with people that she doesn't necessarily agree with about how she had to do it because it was a cultural lunar eclipse. The Dimes Square, the blue hot supernova of New York's in crowd was celebrating canceled online personalities of all things. It was ridiculously good luck for me. When was the next time the city's great game show wheel of trends would spin and point at me as scammers? Yes, I had to go on hip podcasts that also had Sandy Hook deniers as guests, but I also got to do fun things like meet my hero. She admits later to like frothing for attention and like being obsessed with the approval of whatever perceived in crowd she can find. And I found that a lot more honest than this. Like I had to play the Dime Square game because how else was I going to promote my next project? This is the role I must take. (laughs) I do feel that she's 50-50. Sometimes she has these like great intuitive understandings of the culture and the zeitgeist and the algorithm which is buying the bots, aligning yourself with fanfic, making your captions all about fantasy. I do think the way she handles being called a scammer and leaning into the SEO, she talks about how she knew Natalie's essay was going to come out. And so she kind of tried to get as much of the attention back on herself as she could. I think there's some things that she does that are very smart and intuitive. And you could pay a consulting group a lot of money to do half the job. But then she also has these things like hanging out with the Dime Square crowd that she acts like were these brilliant targeted ideas of how she's going to turn around her brand image and she's going to like lean into being cringe in order to become ironic in order to like be reborn and have people less embarrassed of who she is. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Some of you is just throwing as much spaghetti at as many walls and in this attention economy more is more. And whatever sticks you run with. I mean, I actually think we were a spaghetti that she like didn't know how much clout we had. She like came on our podcast. She talked to us. She invited us to one thing and was like, never mind. Yeah. And then also (laughs) when she found out who we were, she was like, oh, I thought you were somebody else. And that somebody else I thought you were was somebody I didn't even know. And I'm just like, okay, good luck. Definitely this whole Dime Square section. I was like, I actually think this is the section that's going to date your book the most because you think you were part of a Studio 54. Yeah. And this really was just like kind of a trend on TikTok. I guess I had that right up in New York Times. A famous cementing of truth. (laughs) Everything in the New York Times is important. (laughs) 
So her Adderall usage is ramping up and she talks about how she like starts to lose circulation in her hands and she just calls it her zombie problem. When she starts to lose circulation, she just has to submerge in a hot bath and she comes back to life. It seems like she fell down one time and hurt her hands and she's like, I was so close to death. And I'm like, it sounds like you sprained your fingers. As somebody who played bitty basketball, I also sprained a lot of fingers. Oh, when you jam one, you got to go one of those splints. My fingers stay jammed. I was not a baller. (laughs) Don't tell Mac. He thinks we're going to have like a WNBA daughter. (laughs) I just hope being like, totally. Uh, I hope she plays for the New York Liberty and we can drive up to Westchester or whatever faraway place they put women's sports. If you're sick of wasting so much food, Hungry Root is here to solve your meal planning and overshopping woes by combining meal planning and grocery shopping all in one. No more full trash cans, only full and satisfied stomachs. Hungry Root is the easiest way to get fresh, high-quality food delivered to your door. They've got healthy groceries and simple recipes all in one place. You just take a short, fun quiz at HungryRoot.com and they'll get to know you, your goals, and how you like to eat, what flavors you like, what kitchen appliances you use. They keep your needs top of mind to start building your cart and your meal plan. HungryRoot recommends groceries based on your tastes, and they give you suggestions for anything you've ever imagined. They've got fresh produce, high-quality meat and seafood, pantry staples, healthy snacks and sweets, and so much more. I recently became a like 99% pescatarian, and I had no idea where to start because I just eat the same three foods all the time. So being able to turn to Hungry Root to say, okay, this is my new style of eating. What have you got for me? I will tell you what, they knocked it out of the park. I made salmon the other day. It is incredible what they've been able to teach me how to accomplish. The best part is everything Hungry Root offers follows a simple standard. It's got to taste good, be quick to make, and contain whole, trusted ingredients. Spend less time shopping and cooking and more time enjoying healthy food that you actually love with Hungry Root. Right now, Hungry Root is offering Celebrity Memoir Book Club listeners 30% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Go to HungryRoot.com worm to get 30% off your first delivery and get your free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com worm. Don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you. She is very hung up on people's disbelief that she was addicted to Adderall. Do you believe me when I say I was addicted to amphetamines? Lots of people don't even though the DEA classifies Adderall as Schedule 2. People don't not believe she was addicted to Adderall. People don't believe that addiction to Adderall was the sole impetus for all of the harm she caused during this five-year period. When she's like, I couldn't finish that memoir because I was addicted to Adderall back then. I'm like, okay, well, what about this time? A lot of characteristics that seem like a pretty strong through line throughout her entire life. She's like, but I was addicted to Adderall then. And she talks about, you know, how she felt when she was taking Adderall. She ends this chapter by saying, I know my addiction was real, even if you don't believe me. I don't know if this sounds fucked up. I don't know how relevant her addiction was. Or I don't know how relevant her addiction was to the online questions about Caroline Calloway. I mean, when she painted her whole apartment white, except for under her bed, that was still the same type of shit that people were questioning the way that we questioned when she sold tickets to an event that she hadn't booked out really yet the way that she sold a proposal for a book that she claimed she never intended on writing. These are all very similar things that are like manic and we're curious about. She was only addicted to Adderall for a few of them. So to be like, don't judge me for the Adderall addiction. We're like, we're not. We're judging you for the things that you also do. Yeah. So now she finds out that her dad is essentially out of money and also in debt. And he owes the bursar's office a great deal of money. And so she gets back to college for her second year at Cambridge. And she's told, like, you can't stay because you owe us tuition. 
And her mom is able to scrape together some money for like a good faith, we'll pay you by the end of the semester payment. And she's like, okay, so the only way for me to pay for school is to like go back to my literary agent and be like, we've got to sell a book right now. I've got stories. There's news articles about me. We've got these Instagram captions. And she is heavily addicted to Adderall. So she calls Natalie to be like, help me write a book proposal. And they crank out a book proposal. And she's able to land a hefty fucking book deal. Whenever I felt bitter that Natalie had it so fucking easy that her parents had snapped their fingers and conjured up her first writing job for her editor-in-chief on as a book critic at O Magazine, and now that she was getting her second writing job from me, oh, well, I'd been forced to build this Oxbridge Instagram brand alone just for her to swoop in at the last moment and take 35% of it, I'd reminded myself of one simple fact. I was broken and in love with her. She also talks about writing it together. She says, when we were writing together, our weaknesses balanced each other out. She was too pithy and quick, but I was also too languid and wanted to digress a lot. So together, we had a perfect narrative voice. And she actually doesn't hear call Natalie pithy. She says Natalie was controlled and contrived to the point of coming off stale. In duet, however, our liabilities birthed a narrator who had none of our shortcomings and all of our gifts. It was not lost on me that Nat at her sharpest and me at my frailest were two writers of equal talent. Vicious. Zing. On Instagram, aspirational wealth performs well. But Natalie corrected me in word docs real fast. People hate the rich in long form prose. Make yourself the plucky underdog. Together in the book proposal, we created a character who plays a bumbling second fiddle to all the wealthy, graceful girls skating social figure eights around her. Was it strange seeing Nat take the same literary device she had once taught me and years later weaponizing it to take me down in her tell-all? Yes. These are the lines that I was like, oh, wow, those were some real shots to the gullet. Me too. So they sell the book for $375,000 and she gets an upfront, I think, hundred grand. I slid to the ground and wept. I genuinely could not comprehend the spine-snapping sadness that was sliding down the back of my neck like a hot syrupy doom. Wasn't this everything I ever wanted? I lied both times, once by forgery and now by omission. And she talks about how that she was selling a romantic fantasy story about a schoolgirl abroad when what she was living was a drug addict's life. Yes, she had wanted to call it and we were like, but Natalie came up with the title Schoolgirl. The book agent thought that that title sounded better. It frustrated me to no end that I was literally a student at fucking Cambridge and being forced to reduce my memoir to a misogynistic porn category for vaguely pedophilic men. A male author would never have to put up with this bullshit. But if I didn't play ball, play nice, play the feminine fool, I might not get to remain a student at Cambridge at all. Yes, I'd secured the money to stay at Cambridge, but I'd agreed to spend the rest of my life signing copies of a memoir that wasn't even about me. This doom and gloom is what really threw me for a loop. I can't handle it. First of all, to spend the rest of my life signing copies of a memoir, a lot of books get published. Not writing the book made you famous. Writing the book Maybe it would have been a hit. Maybe it wouldn't have been. But also this idea that it was so not about you when now we've read almost 100 pages of you waxing poetic about Cambridge. And also now creating the thin air, this romantic triangle between you and Natalie. This is, again, just another love story of unrequited love about this girl who's at this beautiful place. They've been in Italy almost in love. They've been almost touching in beds and inns and Cambridge and New York. Yeah. This is an international lesbian love affair of unrequited love. So if this is the story, like, why is it such a fucking doomsday parade to think about writing it? I would also like to point out something interesting, that she's so offended by this sexist pornographic title that she's been reduced to this this little girl. This whole chapter, she's co-opting the traditional stripper with a heart of gold who's just trying to pay her way through school narrative. Yeah. We have learned via the stripper world 
that as long as it's all for the name of higher education and bettering yourself, you're allowed to do whatever you want and society can't have a moral qualm with you. She's like, of course I wrote a fake book, but it was also I could go back and study at Cambridge. So I could go back for my like eighth year of college so I could get the diploma from the school that I thought was most impressive. (laughs) This essentially is student loan debt. So then she gets into sleeping pills. She gets into sleeping pills because she got into the habit of staying up for days on end from Adderall. And then once she is ready to go to sleep, she couldn't always fall asleep. So she has to get sleeping pills into her rotation as well. She also tells her version of the famous Natalie story where they went out and Natalie may or may not have hooked up with this Dutch guy. And then Caroline went home and went to bed. And Caroline's like, I don't know. I just paid her $18,000. I assumed she would stay at a hostel. Again, I see both sides. Caroline says, self-destructive behavior is a one-woman operation. It was perhaps the only lesson I knew that Natalie did not. Instead, I pulled her towards me, led her to the bed. I told her to lay down and I cupped her head in my lap, stroked her hair as I murmured, you're so precious to me. I guess if I was abroad with a close friend, I would have assumed that they wouldn't have been like, well, fend for yourself for the night. It is crazy to be like, I don't know if something goes wrong with this stranger in a different country, just go get a hotel room. But also if something had gone wrong with a stranger in another country and I couldn't get into my own Airbnb, I would just say, okay, I'll find a hotel. The way Caroline acted was really out of line. And the way Natalie acted was stupid. Like Natalie has no fucking world smarts for the life of her. It's crazy. She likes to be fucked over. Yeah. She likes to have been wronged. And I do think that is the type of person. And I do think Caroline is somebody who doesn't consider others. So they were like a match made in heaven. Yes. And Caroline was like a very reliable source. If your drug is getting wronged, she's got a never ending supply. So Natalie had moved out to London to help Caroline with this. Which is another one of the things similar to West Village where I'm like, okay, well, I see now why Natalie might have been so pissed when you pulled the rug out from under her and said, I'm not finishing this book because she had probably quit a job to come do this. To move across the pond, so to speak, and take up a full-time job helping your friend write that. And you're like, oh, I wasn't going to really do that. Like, that is fucked up. But Natalie moves out because she claims that her parents have mold in their basement and she needs to go home and help them. And I'm like, what would a college-aged girl do to help her parents with mold? Like, clearly she was fleeing the Yeah, good for her. But that is like the worst lie I've ever heard. I think Caroline is being inconsiderate and fucking people over. But I also feel like in this entertainment industry, who hasn't been screwed out of a handful of projects that were surely definitely going to happen? You know what I mean? I think that that just kind of is the name of the game. If it had worked out, what a fucking lucky shtick for Natalie that she was going to get like 40K at 22 to come help her friend with a book. And now she has a book to her name and $40,000. For just hanging out and dicking around based off of the success someone else built. So she then tells this little story. Did you know that the first vampire was a woman? More than 20 years before Dracula, there was Carmilla. And she fed only on beautiful young women. In her tell-all, Natalie depicted me as an emotional vampire feeding on everyone around me. And you know what? I take full responsibility for that. I bet during my addiction, I was a nightmarish demon. That line in itself, I bet during my addiction, I was a nightmarish demon. That to me is not taking full accountability. No. There's still like this maybe. Yeah, I'm sure. You might still be a nightmarish demon to this day. But sometimes I also blame myself for what Natalie did to me, selling the events of my life to tell her own, using my first and last name for money in a headline, capitalizing on my pain. After all, I'm the one who first invited her inside. So this little switch that she's just like, not only do I take accountability for the things that I may or may not have done, I bet I was a tough cookie, but you know, it's probably my fault that Natalie fucked me over too. I fucked myself over by making friends with someone like her. In a weird turn of events, she says, Andy's dad, Andy was the guy. Her high school boyfriend. Andy's dad was the person who told me over the phone that my own father had died. What's that? Oh, you don't remember Andy from 40 chapters ago? Imagine how I felt after 10 fucking years. I guess they had happened to be schoolmates at Exeter as well. And I'm like, that is crazy. 
And that's why you didn't need to invent a life to create a memoir, Caroline. Your own life was writable. So she has this moment coming back to New York after graduating Cambridge. She has this huge book deal, this huge Instagram fame. She's living in New York City. She reconnects with Andy. He reaches out to her over Facebook and the tables have just turned so hard. He was the one who introduced her to Martha's Vineyard and rich people summering. And now here they were meeting up in New York when she's an it girl and he is, she says, a fat guy. With a dead end job in China. But she's telling him about how society works and she's like, I've done it. I've become the character that I wrote for myself. She's very unlikable in this chapter. So it's June 2017. The time has come. If she doesn't get this fucking book in, the deal's off. So she's like, cool, deal's off. She's plunged herself into over $100,000 worth of debt. And this part, again, to me, was the part where like it kind of hit me where I was like, oh my God, she really is good at like writing these worlds and these schemes and these things because $100,000 worth of debt in your early 20s is actually standard. <laughs> so she's talking about the breakup call with her agent. And she's like, I won't tell you what he said to me because I feel bad. I put him through more than any client ever should. As he shouted, I held the black reflective rectangle of my phone away from my face, just like my father's angers had always taught me. And then he says, you'll never work in this town again. She laughs. He flips out. I will say, if someone said to me, you'll never work in this town again, I would laugh. That's funny. And then she has a different editor who's very kind to her and said, if this is not the book you want to write, then you're doing the right thing. I'm proud of you. So she spends a couple of years, it seems like, kind of just bouncing around the world. For a while, she goes back to England and then Scotland. She talks a lot about the riches of St. Andrews. It's so funny. It really seems like she keeps writing this book that she claims she would never write. She would pay $100,000 to get out of writing. She has this fantasy about this version of her that did write the book that just went along with things. She said, what happened to the girl who ended up making Schoolgirl into a book and took the other $400,000 from the publishers that she had coming? Did she end up with Carl? What was it like staying close to Natalie? Did the two of you ever confess your love? Who said it first? I just, I'm sorry. Was Natalie in love with her? She's like not only inventing this love for Natalie, but she's pretending that Natalie was in love with her back. Yeah. I mean, did Natalie ever say that she had sexual romantic feelings for DeCaroline? Not that I know of. It's one thing to be like, well, I was secretly in love with her the whole time. But it's another thing to be like, well, we were in love with each other. And I also don't remember it from when we were like kind of steeped in Caroline culture, like reading her Instagram captions and like yeah. really exploring all of that stuff. Anyway, then she talks about the initial birth of the scammer when she has these creative writing workshops. She hadn't been posting in years. She had kind of just been posting long-winded Instagram stories because she was afraid to post in feed. It felt too permanent. And she had all these stories built up, swirling around her head. She had gone to St. Andrews to get off Adderall. So she's not on Adderall anymore and she's ready to tell stories again, but she's afraid to write them. So she says, what if I tell these stories in person? But like workshop where I tell you stories doesn't feel like a good selling point. She says, six hour long storytelling event with goodie bags and food won't sell. So creativity workshops it is. And she has these creativity workshops. And then she gets branded as a scammer because shit goes wrong. And something she really sticks to is that the people who went to these workshops that the workshops were intended for all loved them and they were, did not feel that they got scammed. And then she tells the story within this larger story of explaining herself to the Vanity Fair reporter who says, Caroline, nobody cares. You have to move on from trying to provide receipts and proving you paid vendors, etc. I guess I feel like the Vanity Fair writer was right because I remember when this was all happening and I didn't think it was that big of a deal for the most part, like people calling her a fire fest. Well, I remember the joke was I was like, these people were paying how much money to learn how to write an Instagram caption? Yeah, scam them. Yeah. That in itself was a scam. If you signed up for that, the joke is on you and you deserve whatever you get. The one that was canceled, that there was like a big issue with refunds. I think there was a blizzard. Yeah. And so people were like, well, people had traveled in for this and she canceled it. 
people travel for concerts, people travel for things all the time and shit happens sometimes and it sucks. And that is just the way weather works. But I think that the reason it no longer is likable or interesting to hear her justify it is because she leaned into scammer so hard and like did all these other goofy little scams and named her book scammer for her to be like, no, I'm honestly not a scammer. It's like, well, you can't say that. So then she gets the email from Natalie reaching out in a heads up. Her email is about the essay she wrote. She claims that the essay was about addiction and her recovery. Of course, it wasn't. (laughs) When I sold the story of my life to publishers, I left out everything bad. When Natalie sold it again to magazine editors, she left out everything contextualizing or good. She never said outright that she had written my Cambridge captions, but doing so would have opened her to a libel suit since truth is an absolute defense. Instead, she implied it, activated a powerful and insidious cultural stereotype. Pretty equals stupid, ugly equals smart. And I have to say, I am Team Caroline. I think Natalie should not have tried to claim ghostwriting yes. ownership. I guess that's the headline they needed in order to like give the haters what they wanted to be like. And Caroline's such a fake. But I am like, the more interesting essay here is the dynamic of female friendship and the alpha and the beta. Like There is something really interesting here about when you're trying to find yourself and the fact that so many young women do find their identity through female friendship as opposed to what I think we're often fed in the media, which is romantic relationships, which is why I actually find this rewriting is like, it was actually all lust. I'm like, shut up. That's what I was going to say is I find it actually really disappointing if it is a romantic love because I think friendship love is equally as powerful and important. And so to completely erase that from the narrative is just honestly disappointing to me. I think the problem is there's so few like female friendship stories. And then there's also so few female queer stories that like, I just wish there was more representation because I think both are underrepresented. I wish instead of being like, I ghost wrote her, I would have loved just a story of female friendship and how toxic it can be. And Caroline Calloway being such a big personality, it really emphasizes the weird dynamics that happen within female friendship. From Natalie's perspective, a story about thinking that you were like a key 50-50 part of something that became something major only to find out that you were a footnote. I also would have thought it was an interesting story. Like, what's it like to be searching for yourself as somebody's like mascot? Yeah. So she claims that in the essay, she says something like, the last time I saw her, she gave me half-used makeup and a bounce check. And she's like, well, yeah, I gave her makeup that I didn't think looked good on me, but I thought would look good on her. And a check for $200, which Natalie had originally given her freshman year so that Caroline could buy herself a vibrator. She's like, I obviously didn't have the money, so the check bounced. So I am like, well, Caroline, don't write checks that bounce. Who even writes checks? But the last time we spoke was when I was in Seattle going to therapy three times a week and I sent her a lengthy email with a detailed account of every way I ever wronged her as part of my AA-informed recovery program to make amends. But once hating your name is no longer a radical hot take, your identity will forever be a more accessible airstrip for public outrage. Going viral as a scammer for my creativity workshop earlier that spring had doused my name in internet gasoline. I knew this. And so when I opened Natalie's email in August, I heard the scraping of a match. One part that we skipped over, someday I plan to publish a book called The Cambridge Captions, a collection of all my early Instagram captions expanded with current commentary because I alone own their copyright. What an uninteresting book. That one, if it exists, I will not touch. Didn't she already do that when the whole cut essay came out where she went through and she screenshotted all of her Instagrams and then posted the screenshots and like gave detailed descriptions? I have no interest in rereading old Instagram captions. Especially if all of the footnotes are like, and I wrote this when I wrote this and I wrote this. And that's exactly what she did already on Instagram. So Caroline, you did that. You can't make a book out of captions about captions. <laughs> but I guess you can. But I think you're better than that. And I hope you push yourself harder. Same. So she gets this email from Natalie and she's like, oh shit, it's about to go down. How do I survive this? How do I funnel it into the best thing for me? So she starts just going ham on her own Instagram being like, an expose is coming out. You're going to find out things about me you never knew. And of course, people are going to her page. The truth is, 
Natalie writing about Caroline are driving more people to Caroline. And that's how I feel overall about like scammer versus whatever Natalie's story is in the the new essay Natalie wrote for The Cut where it's an excerpt from her book and she talks about like using Caroline to then leverage a book deal of stories about her own life. I was like, I don't want to hear about your life. Yeah. You've not written yourself as a character that I care to know any more about. So in the meantime, she gets a call from her dad. He wanted to say he was proud of me. Um, I'm really proud of you too, dad, but I've actually been having the craziest day here in New York. Could we catch up in two weeks when the whole crisis has blown over? That'd be fine. I love you. I love you too. I'd never see or speak to him again. And that is the crazy thing about Caroline Calloway. And it is in addition to her personality and the choices she makes, the things that have happened to her are insane. Yeah. I mean, it is crazy that in the midst of the most viral hate campaign against her, when she is the most read an article on the cut, her dad has died. Like that is crazy. Yes. And she talks about suicide and finding a therapist that she loves and how she had tried to find her dad a therapist and get him help. And you just can't find help for someone who's not willing to accept it. She talks about the first couple of times she got canceled online. She had apologized and apologized and apologized. And she had learned, I'm never doing that again. I'm never explaining myself again. If Natalie wanted to make me go viral as a scammer again, then I'd make such a storm online that she'd never be able to escape the curse of my name. The name she sold out for just $5,000 in a byline. After all, the cruelest thing I could do to her, she'd already done to herself. She'd made me the main character of her life while she'd only ever been a supporting one in mine. It's a cage she built and climbed inside of without me. And now I'd turn the lock. (laughs) I mean, I have to say that's a fucking good dig. And it's true. And Natalie did do it. And I have to say, if anything, I thought Caroline gave Natalie more credit in this book than like she maybe even deserved in real life. Like, I don't think Caroline was thinking about Natalie in the time they were apart. Yes. Unfortunately, Natalie has done a second essay in the cut. It is also about Caroline. Maybe she could prove us wrong. But so far, it does seem like she is doomed to a life of the girl who used Caroline for clout to cut her book out and could never beat it. Best of luck, Natalie, but it's not looking good so far. So the second essay in the cut is an excerpt from her book of essays. Harper Collins, who did a book deal with Natalie for a book of essays, is like, okay, the only thing we can sell about this book is Natalie's essays about Caroline. We talked about that essay on our Patreon last week. We'll dive a little bit deeper this week, I think. So as this is all going down, she is having a bad time. She like online was very like getting in front of it. But in real life, she was pretty beaten down. And she reaches out to Natalie and Natalie's like, I'm happy to hear from you. They hop on the phone. And Natalie pretty immediately is like, well, if you want to apologize for being such a bad friend, you can bundle your life rights with my life rights and I'll sell them. So the way Caroline tells it is honestly genius. And I think if she had only left in this chapter about Natalie, she would have won the war. Yeah. Like, I agree with you. The other things were petty and maybe a little low and dirty. And definitely I felt like the way that she's like, I was turned on was too far. But if she had left that out and just left in these Natalie chapters, Natalie would have been fucking toast. Caroline calls her up, is like apologizing, apologizing. And Natalie goes, hey, listen, how are you doing on money? And Caroline's like, honestly, not great. And she's like, I'd love to help you out. I could give you $15,000. And she's like, Ryan Murphy wants to option the rights for Netflix. He said that if you signed, we could give you 15K up front, maybe even 10,000 more down the line, but 15 guaranteed. So just like, let me know. And also if you sign, you know, I forgive you. And if you really have changed and really do mean that you're sorry, this is a really good way to make amends to me. After everything you put me through during your addiction, bundling your life rights to my deal would be a really tangible way for you to um, show up for me and for your own sobriety. If that is a direct quote, that's bananas. I mean, that's insane. So then it turns out the fucking actual deal is that if Natalie could get Caroline to sign her life rights away, Natalie would get a million dollars. Without Caroline, they could only get 100K because they're like, you know, without Caroline, there's not much story here. But she was going to take a million and give Caroline 15K. 
So then she tells a story about how she's so miserable, which I, sorry, I said that mean, but actually she had every right to be miserable. She did have every right to be miserable. But what breaks her misery is going to the Harvard Lampoon and we get pages and pages about how amazing the Harvard Lampoon is. Honestly, I think coming off of the heels of Colin Jost describing how amazing the Harvard Lampoon is, I'm like, I don't give a shit. She even name drops Colin Jost. She's like, he was just here. And I'm like, listen, he's not much. If you saw him, you should punch him in the face. He likes it. (laughs) (laughs) This is a better memoir than his, though. That's very true. Like, inarguably. It wasn't until I'd reached a certain degree of healing after my father's death that I realized I actually wanted my life. Natalie couldn't have it. I would not sign my life rights away to her and let her suck out all of the value from my story for herself. So then she gets kind of down square with it again. And she's like, I knew I had to act fast. So I helped the Red Scare sell tickets to a live show so that I could become their headliner. And then I flew down to do a funeral. And so interesting because then she tells this story about a man at the funeral who knew her father and like saw a good side of him. And these are like touching, beautiful moments. And it is enough for a memoir. And I guess I don't want that from her because what she does is so uniquely crazy in her that I am like, I'd rather scam her than like a sincere memoir. But I do think as she gets older, there is a real memoir in her about like the family part of her life, the things that she ran from that she thought were not memoir worthy. I mean, her mom is barely in this book. Yes. Only for a moment to talk about like a horrific surgery she had because of cancer. And then another moment to talk about how her mother's grandmother had been rich in Florida once. And I'm like, there's more important things than being rich and almost dying. Yeah. No, I guess not. And she also at her father's funeral learns more about the end of her father's life and learns that he had been seeking help. He had tried to fight his disease, but it was really moving to her that he had tried to keep living. This part was really interesting and well-written. And Caroline, if you're listening, I don't know if you are, the part that you wrote about your dad's death was really beautiful and well done. So then she gets into, straight from the funeral, she flies out to LA to sell her own life rights. And she says it's in the wake of her Red Scare PR stunt. I really think it was in the wake of the whole other PR stunt. Yeah, she's like, I got New York Twitter talking, so LA Twitter would be talking. And I'm like, weren't you already trending via the cut? People were talking. Anyway, so in LA... She has a bunch of meetings set up. A lot of people want to buy her life rights. One of the only people that does not have any interest in meeting with her is Mindy Kaling's production company, who is Team Natalie staunchly and says respectfully, we are convinced that Caroline has nothing further to offer this situation artistically. And it makes her burst into tears. And I agree. And she's like, I even told Natalie that she should read Mindy Kaling's book. And she thought Mindy Kaling's book was stupid. And I was like, I believe everything happening. And I believe that Mindy would not be Team Caroline. Yeah. I believe Mindy would be team Natalie. And I do actually think this is a good example of how Natalie fucked up Caroline's reputation by being like, she's not a writer. Luckily, Lena Dunham comes in and buys the life rights. A lot of you literally, I just got a DM right now being like, why is she defending Lena Dunham? Like she's on the payroll. I'm like, she was was on the payroll. (laughs) And then she tells us this story about meeting Margaret Qualley that she had told us in private that I was like, this could not see the light of day because this feels like it would have real consequences to share this kind of gossip. And it's about how when she met Margaret Qualley, Margaret Qualley had a black eye because she just punched herself in the face after a breakup with Pete Davidson. She was so sad from her breakup that she punched herself in the face to feel something. And Caroline was like, you are the only person on earth who could play me. And so then she said Margaret Qualley was on board to play her. Lena Dunham wrote the script. But things fell apart when Margaret Qualley got engaged to Jack Antonoff, who is, of course, Lena Dunham's ex. And I wonder, did she put in that Margaret Qualley story for clout or to like try and impress Lena Dunham? To try and impress Lena Dunham for sure. She here seems to really believe that the movie never came to be because of the Margaret Qualley, Jack Antonoff thing. And I kind of think the movie never came to be because there are a lot of options in Hollywood. That's why they have this deal structure. That's why it's called an option. It's not a definite. It's not the choice. It's an option. (laughs) 
I guess I wonder what would have happened if Margaret Qualley and Jack Antonoff hadn't gotten together, but I don't think that that's like why the movie doesn't exist. I think more than anything, she puts that in here to like align herself with famous people. And then she talks about moving out to London for a little bit. There was this like hotel you get a discount at if you went to Cambridge and she lives there for her 30th birthday and Lena Dunham keeps being like, I'll come, I'll come. Lena Dunham never comes. And it turns out they've never even met. Because when they had that original meeting, Lena Dunham couldn't make it because she is chronically ill. And so it ends up getting canceled. And they never, ever have a meeting even. What movie was going to exist when like no meetings had been had? She also says during this time when she was working on writing, she was waking up every morning and going for a two-hour run. Does that sound right to you? She's got no knees. What do you mean two hours? (laughs) Well, she's got knees, but they're not capped. (laughs) They're squirting everywhere. Lucy Goose. Let me tell you something. There's caps in this sentence. (laughs) (laughs) Two hour run, I call cap. (laughs) (laughs) She meets again with her original creative writing teacher, who she actually reconnected to via a journalist. And she gets on page that she says, who was the better writer, me or Natalie? And he goes, Caroline, you were always the better writer. I thought you knew all you ever had to do to write better than her was write. So now she's got that zinger too. Anyway, then she has to all, all this money back. So she starts an OnlyFans and she goes on this whole rant about how it was for intellectuals, people who went to Harvard and Yale and didn't want to just jerk off to smut. So just topless stuff where she was just up as Juliet Capulet. Okay, this is the part that really pissed me off. This is another one of the over the line things. I'd be ranked among the top 0.3% of all OF creators, making everyone in the world come except myself. I designed my sex work specifically for snobs. In my head, I called my demographic boys who went to Princeton and now work on Wall Street and who think I would have been mean to them in middle school because they didn't know I'd been bullied for my crutches then. Let me tell you something. Those boys working on Wall Street, they're watching just regular porn. They're not like, I'm a Wall Street Princeton boy. I have to find the smartest boobs on OnlyFans. (laughs) I don't believe anybody but straight women were looking at her OnlyFans. I just really don't like when someone who like deems themselves too good for sex work swoops in to be like, I did it, but here's why. And it wasn't for pervs. It was for Ivy boys. I'm sorry. Those Ivy boys are having women who look like their moms pee on them in a basement. They don't have time for your Peter Pan collars with nipples showing. (laughs) I just think that there are real sex workers who do good sex work that's like worth paying for on OnlyFans. (laughs) And this really discredits them. Anyway, she did write another scammer. Scammer did exist. She started taking pre-orders in January 2020. The book was going to go to printers March 2020. But then, you'll never believe, COVID struck and she deleted the book. She said it was supposed to be about the worst year ever, 2019, the year that she got canceled and her dad died. And then when there was a pandemic, she's like, what am I going to say? My 2019 was the worst year ever when obviously 2020 is the worst year ever. It makes no sense. And this is something we've found from Caroline in texting with her and knowing her. She really will not put herself above a world event in a way where I'm like, "Okay, but you're not the world. You and COVID don't have the same audience. (laughs) But I just think that if March 15th, 2020, a book came out about the worst year, no one would have been like, how insensitive. Yeah, we thought it was a two-week shtick then. We all thought that was vacation. Yeah, I do think that this is bullshit because March 15th, 2020, I don't even think I was off work yet. She's also like, at this point, I moved back to Florida in 2022 to have to care of my mom and my grandma. Every time she wants to punish herself, she says, I'm going to fuck a woman. And what does she do on this day that she decides to go out and fuck a woman? 
She fucks a fat guy who looked like Natalie instead. Since NYU, she'd gotten an adorable pot belly and chopped off all her hair into a pixie cut. This guy's face looked eerily like Hans Holbein of King Henry VIII, but his body was identical to hers now. Even the B-cut breasts. I fucked him to hold on to her, but mainly I fucked him because hooking up with a woman felt like a treat and this felt like a punishment. There's a lot going on there and none of it is nice to, I think, (laughs) Natalie, to this guy, to Hans Holbein, (laughs) to lesbians, to men. (laughs) She really does like with one fail swoop. Jesus Christ, what a sentence. You can say adorable pot belly, but we don't believe you. She gets into not paying her rent in New York, which honestly is just like ripped straight from the Vanity Fair articles. Basically, she would rather spend money on other stuff. And who among us wouldn't? And she's like, partying is a good way for me to build my business of being a party girl. And I'm like, the logic is airtight. (laughs) I can't disagree. She wants a historical landmark in New York. It's going to be turquoise. She really gets down to the crux of why this book, why now, what happened with the COVID book never came out. No book has ever come out. But finally, she knew Natalie was writing a book and she said, by hook or by crook, I will get a fucking book out. (laughs) By hook or by crook, I will publish my book. (laughs) She told us it was going to be all postmodern poems. And I have to say, this is much better than that. Yeah, it is a lot better than postmodern poems because you guys didn't know how I feel about poems. I'm not a fairy tale, but I'm not a criminal either. I'm a writer. Maybe now that I have a book, people will finally believe me. Ain't that the truth? I don't know who I am unless my memories are shared, agreed upon, beloved beyond me. But perhaps the antidote to shame is exposure. Accepting who we are is the price for who we will become. That's interesting because I think one of the truest things about her is that her memories are not agreed upon. Yeah. And then she ends the whole book. I've never finished during sex, but at least I finished this. And I got to give it to her. It was a through line. We will go over the acknowledgments, of which there are 20 pages, on the Patreon. I also think we're supposed to interview Miss Calloway herself. So we'll see if that episode drops or not. Trust us. If it doesn't, it's not us. Okay, how fertile is this soil? I would actually say 5 out of 5. Whoa, I would give it a 4.5. I feel like we've had a lot to talk about. I think the lack of there there is a lot there. Yeah, I would recommend it to a friend. I read it on the train. I feel like it's perfect for the summer. I mean, she wrote a great summer book. If you're going away on a vacation for a weekend, it's a perfect three-day weekend book. And I also feel like in terms of the fertileness of the soil, there's a lot to talk about. Yeah. This is a book that you read and you have to make your friend read because you want to yammer about this book. And then how many worm teenies would you have with this writer? (laughs) I guess four. Four out of five. Yeah. I would go too simply because I could not stand her being like, who's a more famous Claire than me? I feel like she'd be like, I thought you were Claire Dunphy from Modern Family. (laughs) That's who I signed up to get drinks with. I guess I said four because we like literally have signed up to get drinks with her and gone. And so I was like, well, I'd be a fucking hypocrite if I said none. (laughs) True. I think I probably had exactly two drinks with her. I guess our scale is a fucking farce. (laughs) No, I guess it's spot on. It's exactly, you probably had four. I probably had two. This was before you had Bug. You were crazy back then. (laughs) Well, thank you guys so much. And thank you to our five-star reviewers. Who are they, Ashley? Thank you so much to our five-star reviewers, Cato19. I wish I could give you 19 smooches on your head. Thank you, Alexander Hernandez219. I love you so much. I wouldn't even care if you go by Xander. Thank you, Cindy98. It is an absolute friggin' sin how much I adore you. Thank you, NA7, Ally3 underscore 15. It's not a lie, Ally, <laughs> that you're the best. Thank you, Wade and Jules. 
the iconic duo I'll ship for the rest of my life. Thank you, KB1128. You be the best there ever was. Thank you guys so much for your reviews and for listening to this podcast. I love you so fucking much.